I'm Matt Booker. I'm Dave Laird. And I'm David Lipsky, and we're on the Concavity Show. Oh. All right. David Lipsky, episode 74, everybody. David, I feel like this is um, eight years overdue, and I don't know why it's taken us this long to get to sit down with you on our end, but it's wonderful to finally have you on the show. Obviously, people who know Wallace will know you very well. You, of course, are the author of, although, of course, you end up becoming yourself, which we've talked about a lot on this show over the years, and then it was adapted into a movie called The End of the Tour, and you were played by Jesse Eisenberg, and Jason Segel played Wallace, and that was episode two we talked about that movie, Matt, and our thoughts about it, because we got the privilege of seeing it as like a pre-release at a Wallace conference in 2015. Um, so, Dave, it's amazing to have you here. Thank you so much for joining us today. I appreciate what you were saying. I just, you know, I thought I would be patient. It wasn't my place to rush you guys. You know, I... I would send you guys pictures of myself sometimes and cards. I assume you guys got all the letters. I didn't get any of those. Matt was holding out on me. Invitation must have got lost in the mail. I would always be like, when are we going to get Lipsky? And Matt's like, oh, yeah, he's a good friend of mine. I don't want to bug him yet. I know he's busy right now. We'll we'll get him eventually. And it just like. I said, he's working on this book as soon as he finishes this book. That was like 10 years ago. Yeah, that's right. But I, I didn't realize you were being that. I would just go down to the end of the dock and I would look at the green lights that represented your show and I would reach my hand out to them. <laughs> Apparently one of my neighbors has been noticing that and has put it in an LJ, you know, so. LJ short novel about the uh, the dreams and failures of the American system. Does he live out on Long Island? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, just just before. Oh, it's just okay. the Ford right before you get to the Gotcha, gotcha. Oh, yeah. no, so Dave kind of did your formal intro there, but there's actually a lot more to the story. And for people who maybe only know you through uh, the Wallace connection might not, you know, we're going to get to how you ended up writing this book, uh, The Parrot in the Igloo. But, you know, when I first met you, I think I started uh, reading the art fair and the art fair is your first novel um, which is sort of autobiographical. Is that fair to say in some ways, um, which is about growing up <laughs> Just in the, it, the art world. Um, and if, for people who don't know, um, your, your mom is a very talented and famous artist. And your dad's uh, a Pat painter, Lipsky. is that right? And no, oh, her, that's, his that's mom. Okay. And his, his dad worked in advertising. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, that's fair, right. And, yeah. His mom, uh, my dad wrote Dave a, a song called the Pepsi Generation song, I think. And the lyrics are feeling free, feeling free. And what it meant was feeling free to abandon his wife and two small children. Shit. Oh, Damn. <laughs> not to get too personal. Jeez, oh, okay. that's not to put yeah. too fine a point on it, but uh, yeah, right, it's run, very, run. um, very Updikean, um, type, uh, rabbit run, you mean, but. Um, anyways, uh, David I was a writer going back into his undergraduate years, and I wanted to point out one story, which was that when he was an undergraduate, he published a story in The New Yorker called $3,000, which was later selected by Raymond Carver as one of the best American short stories in 1986. And this is like saying – I was trying to think of the right analogy for this, David. This is like a high schooler being drafted by the New York Yankees and starting in the World Series. Yeah. And it's like happened maybe once or twice in history. But like I I, I don't know of another like it's such a legendary story of like another undergrad who's published 
a story in the New Yorker. Like it's probably impossible in these days. Would you say? Like, uh, did you appreciate that at the time? <laughs> um, like, I was. Uh, yeah, I was really excited, but it was just more like. Um, since you were mentioning Updike, uh, a writer he really liked was someone named John Barth, who, as you know, Wallace. Sure. And uh, Barth said that uh, one thing that seems to attract people to writing is a passionate lack of alternatives. <laughs> and I just really had wanted to be a writer from when I was very, very young. Um, and so since uh, since my father had followed the advice of his uh, caffeinated beverage advertisement, um, I knew that I had to start publishing while I was in college or grad school at the latest. So it was more, it was exciting, but it was more like, okay, maybe this is going to work because... I'm sure you guys have had friends who graduated from school and they could kind of get their parents to pay for some housing or they could get internships. Uh, for mine, it was just, okay, if you, if you can't get started pretty early, you're not going to be able to do this thing that you really love. Yeah, I think that's something that's been on my mind lately as, you know, obviously I'm not in my 20s anymore. And I'm <laughs> obviously, uh, you know, in my late 40s. Um, looking at people who are in their 20s who are so ambitious, you know, and have this sort of, it's such a different perspective looking back at them now, like you, you have younger students. I assume that you're teaching kids in their 20s, basically. And no one has a linear path to success, right? Like we could go through and name all of these different stories of people who were successful, but the ones that stand out are the ones that it's like, published in the New Yorker when I was 22, but, you know, had a best-selling book right out of the gate. That's not the path for most people. So, No, and I always, I'm sorry, I, Matt, whenever you and I talk, I think we both get too excited because it's just one of, the, it's one of the weird things that's why I think a lot of us read books and why we listen to podcasts like this is that there aren't that many people that we can talk to comfortably or excitingly. And so when you have that great good fortune, it can sometimes be a misfortune for the talk because you just like, wow, this is the kind of talk that I kind of wanted to have. Well, so, but like, and we can I, we can edit all this out later. Don't no, worry. I love that. Um, I mean, yeah. uh, one of the things that I loved about doing the Wallace book, uh, the way I did. And I remember I was reading a review of the Parrot book, and it was a very positive, blush-making review of this book, the Climate book, which Matt is quite right. I spent a long amount of time on, large amount of time on. And they were saying that I was too nice to David Wallace in a sickly appreciation of an overpraised writer or something like that. Um, and I remember thinking, like, you may not like David Wallace, but I didn't. There's very little writing by me in that book. That was the whole point of it. Right. right. Yeah. It's just it a transcript, just, essentially. Yeah, right? exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like, I want you to know what this guy is like. Yeah. Um, but I, I, uh, I think a lot about... Um, what you were saying about a uh, linear path to getting good stuff done. And I think about Wallace's path, which is so interesting because Wallace himself, when, when we were driving around talking, so uh, Dave, how far into the broadcast or how far into the podcast are right now? Do you have a counter on it? Like a time. Seven minutes. Seven, seven minutes. minutes. That's, that's as long as I could wait before I told you. <laughs> <laughs> please do. Please yeah, yeah, do. Let's just get, get that out of the uh, way. But, uh, we wanted to, wanted to hit that no, hard. But, but, so but it's a great thing, which is just that, the way he ended up doing his best work is when he couldn't stage manage his life. And uh, Barth, uh, who he and I, Wallace, uh, David and I were both great fans of, Barth had this great thing. And for anybody who is trying to decide how to be a writer or how to be a filmmaker or how to be a musician, 
and you're also kind of basing it on the examples of people whose work you've liked. Barth said this great thing about it. He said, um, it's a very confused mariner indeed that confuses the stars he or she steers by for their destination. Because you can try to copy what other people have done or like, okay, uh, by the time he was 30, Wallace had had uh, a bestseller, a bestseller, a bestseller published in paperback, uh, Room of the System, and then he had had a collection of stories. So that's what I need to have done by the time I was 30. But his best work comes from something he can't control, which is he ends up at, you know, the real life equivalent of Edit House. And that gives him an amazing subject. And so, yeah, I, I love what Matt was saying, which is that those you can't really control those things. Like um, the story that the that first story that Matt was talking about, also pretty autobiographical, which is just I had got myself in hot water and yeah. wrote the story as a way to get out of it, really. And, you know, that obviously we're going to talk a fair amount of, of Wallace here. We are going to get to your book, but I do have you know it's been a while since you and i've gotten to talk about this kind of stuff and so one thing i was thinking in preparing for today was you know i feel some kinship with you and that with both of us when you google our names both of us another guy's name comes up which is david foster wallace and like for better or for worse you're sort of wedded to his legacy now and i sort of like how do you feel about that connection you know that your sort of legacy is attached to his legacy in some way um how do you feel about it Matt? i feel like uh like the, it's like the catholic church or something like there's no getting out man <laughs> they got you it's like i i can't i can't change it even if i wanted to no. um and like i guess you know you make peace with that or you don't and like i've i've obviously made peace with that and wallace had some quote in a wall street journal when broom of the system came out everyone's comparing it to pension and he was like kind of like a child sticking his thumb out right like i feel he wanted to be thought of not as the next pension but as his own self so i i guess i'm fine with it how are you how are you uh i sometimes feel uh lucky and that there was a wonderful there was a wonderful cultural thing happening and matt if there's something great happening with books with reading and writing and it was happening during the time that you, that fate picked for you to spend your allotted 20 to 80 on the planet. It's nice to have been a part of it, right? I mean, where else would you rather have not been a part of it? So no, I'm thrilled. I, uh, and I also, one of the reasons that I did the book was that uh, my producer at NPR said, if you don't, because I'd been talking slash bragging about how great it was to spend time you know this stuff because you and i have talked about this but i've been talking and bragging about how much fun it was to drive around the midwest with david and then he died and they called me up and they said do you want to do a an appreciation on all things considered and i didn't want to because you know uh dave and matt i i'm sure you guys have very clear memory of those days i got a call from one of my best friends from the army who said this great thing to me that night, which is he had somehow, he was at orientation at Stanford Law, so it's a pretty big, you know, achievement to be going to Stanford Law. And he said that he'd always somehow assumed that he was going to meet Wallace, which is one of those childish things that we believe that we don't examine, that he had thought that he would, he would meet Wallace and that he would tell him things that he had never told me, for example, about his experience in combat in Iraq, and that Wallace would 
tell him the thing that would help him understand it. And so what he was coming to grips with was that even though that was a childish fantasy, it was now a child, he could, it was a childish fantasy that he had no way to maintain at all any longer. And so that was kind of the mood that I was in and that most people I knew were in. And I didn't want to do anything. I just wanted to think, read his stuff. I, I remember I started reading uh, the the piece about uh, prescriptive and non-prescriptive grammar again, because it's such an informal, cool piece. And then uh, my producer, a woman named Ellen Silva, said that if I didn't do the piece, everyone would think that he was always a gray-spirited writer. Uh, someone marked for death is a phrase that Hemingway uses about uh, a writer in Movable Feast. And so if I loved his work, it was my duty to share that he was an incredibly cool, charming person. Uh, so I felt great doing that on NPR. Uh, Rolling Stone then, who I'd already turned down, they had asked me to write about, and I had said no a few days before. They said, hey, we just heard you on the radio. So you have wow. a and, Yeah. <laughs> right. yeah, and, and, yeah. And then um, after I spoke to his family, uh, they, you know, we came up with this as something that everyone would be comfortable with. And it seemed to me the best way to do it, which is he seems very uncomfortable about someone presenting his life here's just what he's like. So I got to do that. Um, yeah, what a pleasure. Do you know what I mean? So it, it causes certain sort of sorts of problems because if you don't like Wallace, I guess you don't like me. Yeah, but even, I feel the same way. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that, yeah. that happens with, you know, I'm sort of a stand-in for the default, like, David Foster Wallace fan, lit bro guy, right? Like, <laughs> they just, you know, picture. there's like a picture of me next to that Um but, you know, I, I also brought this up because his, his mom is thanked in the book as yep. is his, his, his sister. And, yeah. you know, it was really through you that I got to meet his mom uh, that time in Austin. No, that's um, great. And, you know, both his parents are gone now. It's sort of a sad coda and also a testament to, like, how long you've been working on the book that she's <laughs> ended up thanked in the book. But, like, can you like tell us a little readers, bit about right? that? Like, yeah. I mean, clearly you became good friends with her enough to, you know, send her your, your work. Oh yeah. Sally was, uh, Sally was great. So, um, Sally in, and, uh, and Mrs. Wallace, Sally Wallace, the memorial, the memorial was last year around, uh, September of last year. Mm -hmm. and I think she had passed a year earlier. So she just oh, yeah. passed. Um, but yeah, she, she was charming and, you know, very strong. Uh, and extremely intelligent and funny in the mm. ways that uh, David was uh, intelligent and funny. And so she just asked me what I was working on, and I told her what I was working on, and she said I would love to read it. And uh, then she started editing it, um, <laughs> and she was great. The first half of the book is edited by Sally, uh, and she it's a great edit. Um, <laughs> uh, when, um, when you turn in a book, to a regular, you know, to a publisher, they will want to put their, they'll want to help you with the phrasing. Um, but let me, without, that, that's Sally's, the first half of the book is Sally's edit, you know, and just what you do with any edit, like um, some of her sugar grammar, as you might imagine, Militant. was tight as the tightest drum. <laughs> like a drum where if you dropped a paper clip, it would be like a tympanium. That's, <laughs> that's just how tight the drum is. Right. Um, and so some of the grammar, I, you know, I went with the slide, but no, that's her edit, mm -hmm. uh, right up until the denier section. 
So, did you come in in contact with his family uh, before he passed away, or only after? Uh, I had I had gotten to know them when I was researching the piece for Rolling Stone, and mm -hmm. uh, they remembered me from the conversations then. Yeah, um, okay. interesting. But I got them, I knew them obviously way better after David died. Mm -hmm. I wanted. Um, this is a good little transition to the book because you mentioned up to the denier section, and uh, you know, for people, this book just came out in the past month, um, past a few weeks ago, I guess was yeah, the official pub pub date. And so I, I don't know how many people have had the chance to read it yet, but you make a comment at the beginning of the book that it's sort of structured um, like a Netflix series. And I really love that. And as I was reading it, I sort of felt like I was dipping into a new episode, right? That it's, it's, it's like a new chapter here. And so when you get to one of those big breaks, like where the, okay, now we're going to get to the real denier stuff um, that you feel like, it's almost like a new season of the show kicks in. <laughs> yeah. um, but I, I want to back up a little bit and just talk about the genesis of the book because, you know, when I, when I had first talked to you years and years ago, you were working on a different book and, you know, then something happened. I don't want to spoil it for everyone. I'll let you tell the story, but like, tell us a little bit about how that, that came to be so that you basically put down another project and had to pick up this project. Uh, I had gotten, you know, when you um, uh, when you have a successful book, uh, it often puts you in a really nice spot for the next book. So that you, you sometimes you'll notice with writers that you really like that a book that you know, like a book that you know is great or a movie you know is great, the next thing comes out and it's not that great. But everyone in the culture is like trying to catch up, so they overpraise it. And like you want to say, no, this this sucks. He's already, he or she has already done it. And it's less good. You know, um, embarrassingly, uh, Matt, you know how much I love Tarantino, but I was crazy for Reservoir Dogs and for True Romance. And then when Pulp Fiction came out, it's like, I've seen him do this before, and it's not as it's not as uh, uncompromising as Reservoir Dogs. That's shocking to me, actually. It's shocking. <laughs> Seriously, we, we saw Reservoir Dogs the first night, and our mouths dropped open. It was just so cool and funny and mean and unyielding. And there was more yielding in Pulp Fiction. Now, he's become way better than any of those movies. Weird thing is, do you remember uh, what Wallace says about Tarantino in, uh, in, the, in the Driving Around the Midwest book? Okay, by the way, isn't it funny to hear how somebody catalogs their own work? Yes. <laughs> the Driving Around the Midwest. I was like, is that a self-reference? Okay. I forgot. If I, if I ever... Tarantino I is such a schmuck 90% of the time, but every so often I've seen genius shining off the guy. Uh, right, yeah. that's pretty accurate. About, right? Yeah, it's pretty accurate. Yeah. But since then, like he is the greatest art director in the in the country. Like, if you look at um, Death Proof and at uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, those are just dialogue movies with very little action. I don't think there's any other director who could be willing to write as dialogue heavy a movie and as you know uh, Jack Bauer twenty four one minute of screen time equals one minute of real time. Do a movie like like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which only has a four minute action sequence. I mean, it's astonishing. I would say I just watched The Whale, the new Aronofsky film, and that is basically like a stage play. It's it's is all it, just dialogue okay, but, in one. But Dave, is it as good? Oh, I wouldn't say it's as good. No, yeah, okay, probably so not. I, no. I had to say success. <laughs> Sorry, right. Right. Oh, no, yeah. you're right. That wasn't no, Dave. The terms of my gamble were nobody would do that. How long is The Whale? How long? How many is hours? It? 
Was oh, it like three hours? Like no, it's probably closer to around two. I think I watched it on an okay, airplane. I can't remember. He goes. He goes three hours. In Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, yeah. Yeah, yeah right. I guess yeah, he has sweet. that anxiety scene, which is just a red herring when he visits uh, Spawn Ranch and finds Bruce Dern. But there's only one action sequence. That's an amazing achievement, which he wouldn't have dared to try in 91. Well, and let me ask you about this, because uh, people who have written a book and they then go through the experience of have people read it, review it, talk about it, you talk about it for a year or two, yeah. and then... You start having to, you know, you're writing something new and you now have this expectation. You were kind of alluding to this that like, oh, shit, these same people are probably going to read this same thing. You sort of already know there's an audience that does exist of real people out there. How does that change the way that you write? Uh, it, you're happy because um, you think that, uh, OK, at least there's that anxiety when you're younger, which is. Nobody gives a shit, basically. So there's your little umbrella where you're doing warm work and then everything else is rain. And so at that point, you know that there is some warm room where somebody, you can come in and you'll sit down and they're looking at you expectantly and they're like, we were just waiting to hear the next thing you were going to say. So it's an incredible relief because before you cross that, it's just you and you just step outside of your tiny, your desk area, your keyboard, and you get drenched by inattention or just disinterest, right? Not even inattention, just total disinterest. So that kind of thing is a pleasure. Um, when I had finished with the book I wrote about West Point, which uh, is similar, it's not at all similar to uh, Wallace, except in two ways. So I'll leave it to you guys whether you want to cut this. But the whole time that I was there, I kept remembering David saying that we always want, we want the equivalent of a religion. We're dying to give ourselves away to something. And to go from talking for a week about Enfield, right, the Enfield Tennis Academy, to living at the Military Academy, I kept wishing the conversation was still going on, right? But then similarly, like the way I ended up doing that book was I just didn't want to do any kind of reporting. I just wanted to go back to writing short long books of the kinds I was doing before I was getting to have experiences like driving around with David in the Middle West for five days. Uh, so I kept turning down interesting reporting jobs. And then Jan, uh, Jan Wetter, who for people who've read the Wallace book, that's the Jan that, that Dave keeps asking about. Is Jan paying for this or what does Jan uh, want? Yeah. <laughs> he said, you've turned down too much stuff and West Point is only an hour away. So you have to go do that story. And then I tried one more way of getting out of it, which is when I got to West Point, I said, this is a very nice military academy that you have here. But the only way I could do it justice is not by visiting for two weeks the way Jan Wenner wants me to. But if you would clear me to spend all four years here as if I were a cadet, oh. <laughs> let me go through all the training that, you know, that we can reasonably do without terrifying your insurers. All right. <laughs> uh, and then I went, well, there's no way they could say yes and then um i think i was like two or three weeks later i was remember jerry springer when that used to be on tv i found it really irresistible i think i was watching it topless like, eating doritos as the world turns trying to, yeah but yeah. trying to get the doritos out of your chest, chest hair, hair. Which, <laughs> all yours can be a right time consuming yeah, yeah. So, so you know so um and then there was a call and the very crisp military voice said the answer is yes. 
Well, and so I had to do this thing because it would have been too embarrassing to explain. I was just, you know, trying to avoid an assignment. And then that became a great book to write. And it was very successful. I ended up on the cover of the Times Book Review and uh, it was bought for Disney bought it for the movies and for TV. And uh, I think it's in the um, I think it's in the introduction to the Driving Around with David book. One very nice thing about it is I felt that I could send an email to David now because it had just been not that my book was a, you know, was a would, would enter the tennis ladder and square off of infinite jest, but it wasn't in terms of the 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 this stature gulf, it wasn't as embarrassing. It would have been sort of unbridgeable. It's a weird thing because to do what all three of us do, you have to be slightly oversensitive, which is great once you're close to someone, but can make it impossible to just jump over what could either be a fissure, right? Could be a giant gulf, could just be a tidy fissure. But I was just too horrifying to me too. Uh, people in his family asked me because apparently he had said very nice things about me when he came back. Mm. And they said, you know, why didn't you ever reach out to him? Not, not despairing, they just were curious. And it was like, you know, I couldn't until I was degrading better in the field. Uh, and then it just seemed like that would be tacky too. Um, but one of the nice things about having a successful book is you get options. Uh, it's not just that they're, it's not just that you have your little tiny umbrella and there's rain and then there are a few places where you can go where people look at you and say, well, we're curious what you're going to say next. Uh, for some time, the rain will stop. It's sort of a wonderful thing, right? If you succeed as a writer, all of a sudden, all that terrible anxiety sort of goes away for a bit. Uh, it comes back, right? But they'll be <laughs> I'm sure, yeah. But, yeah. And people will also want to reward you in various ways, in the same way that um, after not having loved True Romance and Reservoir Dogs, people were really ready to overpraise uh, Pulp Fiction or properly assess it, since you guys liked it immediately and I had to warm up to it. Um, so I got the kind of deal that I'd always wanted. This is just a professional and a, a professional landmark. I got the the size deal that my agent had always wanted me to get. And it was for a novel and for a book that I think still would be a great book. It was a book that answered a lot of questions about living uh, about living in a metropolis in a way that I would want answered. Um, I still want to do the book, Max. That's and that, that's the one I do remember talking to you about that idea. Yeah, and so I had gotten gotten the deal and I was sitting down to do it. And I began by researching electricity. And Holy shit. That's yeah, and, from there. And then if you were honest, you couldn't write the book anymore because you had to write the other book. Mm, um, yeah. And so then I had to learn how to tell this narrative. And And that's one thing I love about the book is that it's such a huge topic. It's such a bold thing that like not many people, especially who you know, are not themselves science writers per se, are going to take this leap to say, okay, to tell the story, I have to go back to the invention of electricity. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I mean, that's a, that's a huge, that's a huge brave thing to, to do. And I think it totally works because you haven't, I haven't read a, a book that is about climate told in this way at all. 
And, you know, most of what I tend to read is fiction. And so it's rare that I even read nonfiction to begin with. Um, And then reading it from someone who is a fiction writer, although you've written a lot of different, you know, journalism stuff to begin with. I I feel like that that decision right there to say, I'm going to start with the invention of electricity and follow that thread really through the whole book um, in in a lot of ways was... um, See light bulbs come back around at the end. Yes, uh, yes. thank you for saying yes. that. Yes. By yeah, the yeah, way, yeah. yeah, that was yeah. A, that was a, once I understood how the book was going to go. But but Matt, you were building to a big compliment, and I got in the way. So no no no, it's just, yeah. I, all I was saying is that it's a huge um, accomplishment that you know I'm I'm glad that you took the ten plus years of however long it took you to get to this point where we are now of actually having the book done and in our hands where we can read it um, because. Again, not many people have that luxury, certainly not many first time writers. And, you know, someone who has established your record when you are going through all of the sort of twists and turns in your career to have ended up in this place. I mean, you must feel like when you were starting out, did you, you know, did you have the confidence that you would be able to get to the end of the story? Because there's so many threads here, man. Uh, uh, wow. Um, what's that? Uh, what? <laughs> Dave, Dave and Matt, what's the outside that we can talk on the show? How long can we go? I'm just kidding. There's no limit. There's no limit. There's no limit. We typically average like an hour and a half to two hours in the regular regular section and then like 20 or 30 for the bonus. So, yeah. It was very complicated. Do you know? Um, I knew what the design of the book was going to be pretty early, but... uh, well, well, and let me let me just wow. By the way, you see me just thinking there. about it. So forgive me. What what the <laughs> what the listener just heard um, was uh, the replacement of the confident the book is finished person who's going around and having great conversations, <laughs> and then this conversation that David Wright I've looked forward to for eight years with the person on the other side uh, who's thinking, how do I get this done? And so I, I'm happy I can now meet our listeners. This is the person who hasn't written the book yet. Yeah, it was super, it was uh, unsettling, actually. Well, well, and in some ways, I, I guess what I was getting at is it feels like it's almost like 10 books in one, mm. that this very well could have been a story about electricity and energy as it leads to climate change. It could have just been the denier section. It could have just been all of the industry. research you did. Yeah. Oh, or yeah, the, yeah, just the, you know, the, the psychology of denial. Yeah. Like, there's like 10 books in here, and so it's just such a huge task to to tackle like you you know how did you approach the research that you did because uh, there's so much of it in here clearly um well i there's a bunch of things that uh that you said that uh the main thing is i wanted to do a book for people who read the things that we read because uh once i understood just what the story was which was unavoidable if you were researching how cities use electricity it was a very upsetting story. Um, one of the things for people who haven't picked up the book yet um, is that we had a pretty clear idea of what was going to happen 1956. Uh, for example, the time the first the first great climate scientist, Amanda Roger, Roger Revelle, yeah, warns readers of Time magazine in about 50 years this will this could have a violent effect on the Earth's climate. Um, the book, as you know, is designed around his saying that. Um, and then uh, another great early climate scientist, not as famous as Ravel, a guy named Gilbert Plass, 
being interviewed by the New York Times on their science page, the Science Week in Review in October of 56. And he says, we'll know for sure, you know, let's say in about 30 years by the 80s. And then the gimlet-eyed science reporter says, the introduction of nuclear power probably won't make much difference with regard to this thing called the greenhouse effect. And by the way, it was so well known by 1956 that Voldemort Campfort, I can't pronounce his last name, that's an approximation, but <laughs> Voldemort Camp Campbellfort said, uh, Dr. Plass uses the familiar greenhouse analogy. Now, that's how well known in October of 1956, the problem with carbon dioxide being emitted mm -hmm. from power plants and from uh, you know tailpipes was. Yeah. Uh, he said the introduction of nuclear power will make no difference. Uh, coal, uh, coal and oil are still profitably, uh, uh, still profitably burned around the world, and there's every reason to believe they will continue to be to be burned as long as it is beneficial to do so. Mm -hmm. So that's '56, and then in the late '70s, and I'm sure we'll get to this. Um, I hope we will. The president is told. The president turns to the National Academy of Science. Now, Knight of Sciences, did you guys know that we had a National Academy of Sciences before this? I've heard of them, but I didn't know what they did. So. Uh, yeah, I'm Canadian, Lincoln, yeah. so all yeah. that oh, stuff is Dave, well, welcome. Your, your, <laughs> uh, the Ministry uh, of whatever. Yeah, but there's, a, there's a rigorous, uh, you have to be nominated by other scientists. It's a tremendous honor. It's a little bit, what flashed through my head is uh, Ray Liotta's narration towards the end of Goodfellas. It's the biggest honor they can give oh, okay. you. Right? Oh, yeah. It's the biggest honor science can give you. Um, and the National Academy of Sciences had warned in 77 that we had to change power sources. And if we didn't do it now, if we waited until you could see the effect of climate change, uh, for all practical purposes, the die will already have been cast since it takes a generation to change power sources. And so there were a number of reports like this that came out between 77 and 79. Uh, I know that we were talking about how I got into it, but this is right. part of how I got into yeah, it. Yeah, no. Um, and so the president, President Carter, then was anxious about these reports. And then one from a number of scientists who work with the Defense Department who said, yeah, this is going to happen. So he went back to the National Academy of Sciences and said, could you just meet again? And it's a little bit like, do you guys, it's in the book, so you guys will know. But did you remember the 1964 Surgeon General's report? Matt, I'm sure you yeah. do. Yeah. If you probably won't. If you buy American cigarettes, it says the Surgeon General has determined smoking causes cancer. Mm. Big warning. Yeah. yeah. It's a, right. It would be, um, you know, if you buy enough cigarettes, uh, if you go to the same convenience store, they very nicely have a guy come from the back and he mementos it onto the inside of your pool. <laughs> and then they sell you the special packs that don't have it written on the packs anymore. Some countries have it worse. You know, the, yeah. the warnings are the whole packet is yes, England, just right? like... Yeah. Uh, oh, we don't even have um, branding on cigarettes anymore. It's just all black boxes with names. Seriously? And then pictures of someone's teeth with mouth cancer. Rotted. It's Seriously? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and I think that's, England kind of, is that's pretty recent, like where cigarette packages have just become all completely homogenized. Um, and then the only difference on them is just the text. Yeah, they it's... should put that on certain kinds of books, like on Mickey's Palaine <laughs> books or on Ann Coulter books, the pictures of you reading it in a very lonely motel room. Like, warning, if you read this and really give over to it, you're going to become extremely isolated <laughs> i think we should extend this to more, more solid like black idea. packaging yeah. behind Music, the counter film, television, 21 and over stuff. you have to be 21 yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, but uh so in 1964 or in 63 um 
President Kennedy said, look, we need an actual answer. We've been looking at cigarettes for nine years. The cigarette emergency begins and it's part of this book. And so, Matt, one of the thrills about this book is that it really... So uh, do you remember the joke that I was doing during the press on the Driving Around with David book, <laughs> which is that it's like the Henry Ford equation, which is any two people in the front seat of a car will become friends it's, if asked to drive in excess of 150 miles. That's um, amazing. Yeah. yeah, similarly, if if you're writing a book, and uh, Matt, I know you've published your first book of fiction. Mm-hmm. Great. Um, Dave, have you published a book or written a book? I have not written a book. There's a chapter in a book. I have yeah. a couple of uh, essays published in books, but that's as far if as If you my... publish a book and you stay comfortably under 300 pages or under mm-hmm. 400 pages, you know, if you're writing about West Point or you're writing about, uh, I don't know, uh, a new cable channel, which is devoted to people suffering, um, <laughs> we'll just, I, my favorite Wallace, <laughs> I mean, uh, yeah. beyond. Uh, Matt, after teasing yeah. you for wanting to name fancier yeah. things than Infinite Jest, that is my pick for fantasy. Okay. I think it's the one uh, I'm going to use later. I love it. But but you will um, you'll know that you're writing about a channel that shows people unhappy, or you're writing about West Point. The minute you cross that, when you do page 400 plus one, you feel that you're writing a book about America. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> and on. So yeah. up to page 400, it's a book Contains about climate multitude. change. But yeah. at 400 plus one it's about america for however many pages you go on that's a great comment because one of my notes on this book that you've just published is that even though it's marketed as nonfiction, it it lacks some of the trappings of nonfiction, um which we'll talk about which you have a website where a lot of the notes are there's no index in the book it reads more like a novel and i would say an encyclopedic novel and i have some examples of that of how you know not only your personality shows up but the amount of information that you gathered into this it one it's very clearly a book about america uh, and and you reference other writers who have crossed that threshold in a way like delillo and updike uh, being two who who used i think america as their primary subject um but there's even some examples it, when you're reading an encyclopedic novel if you're like oh damn i never read a book that mentioned this before and i have a couple of examples of that which i'll get to in a minute that stood out to me um so i, I actually had that written down as that this is an encyclopedic novel, even though it's nonfiction. I agree. So, so yeah, Dave, that's, that's um, wait, Dave, you were going to say something, but but I just want to say that's that's why I ask um, the people at Norton to uh, have us all talk because I knew Matt would get that. <laughs> yes, uh, Matt, that's the book. Of course, I love it. And, I, I mean, and no one like no, I've been waiting. I, I think the pause. The, the, can you can you tell this? There's, there's a regular pause, and then you there's like excited pause. You could tell, I assume, the excited pause. I've been okay. waiting for that. And by the way, <laughs> one, one the only thing I would take issue with, Matt, is those are not some of the notes. That is, that, that is, that is everything. All the notes. That everything. is two hundred and thirty thousand words of notes. That's a quarter and, million words of notes. And give us um, but, the, the URL. You got to give us. Yeah, all on it's the, website, uh, the right? parrot the parrot in the igloo dot com. So it's okay. just it, you can make them all caps, or you can mix and match any way you want. But if you say www.theparrotandtheigloo.com it will bring you to this site which is the very uh, there's a wonderful web designer named Scott Blackburn and he you know he and the brilliant copy editor sorry to be thanking people uh, it was, a real, it was, a real, it was uh, difficult to do a brilliant woman named Rachel Mandick um, put those up and uh, they are you don't even have to have 
bought the book to read them and right. that's a, it's another book in there this was actually is... the first question that i wrote down as i was you know reading through the book from the start was like oh i'm really curious about this choice in this non-fiction work that there's no citations there's no footnotes there's no end notes i'm kind of just trusting that lipsky has done the research and the work is going to be shown somewhere and i'm flipping back for like end notes i don't see anything and then I saw like that there is a long chapter note at this in the end, like in the epilogue, that this is would have made the book so unwieldy to carry <laughs> that um, the, that we've made this decision to put it online. And I was like, and it led to like I thought a really just very like pleasant reading experience, just existentially of like, you know, it didn't feel like I was reading um, like a bunch of academic reports or something and i'm like stopping and checking and cross-referencing stuff so it just led to like a really nice flow of reading i thought um and the fact that all that all the backup work is there um to check out if you if you want to dig into it is made for like a, a just a really lovely kind of flow to this book i really appreciate you saying so that I by the way i would choice. Yeah. yeah um it would have made the book triple its, and it's already 500 pages, mm -hmm, so it would have made mm -hmm. it 1,500 pages. Yeah, it's um, some of theologica yeah, but, by that point. But Dave, I would write, like, there is funny, there is really, really funny stuff in the notes. There, yeah, there's okay. stuff that That's I couldn't it. put in the book, but then even yeah. beyond it, it was just stuff that was, not that it's wilder than some of the people who were in the denier mm -hmm. section, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but it's just more stories and then charming stories about uh, Einstein or about Edison mm -hmm. that there was just no place for, but that I uh, wanted the reader to have. So it really is, um, for people who have enjoyed the book, there is a slightly different uh, book that is longer than the, <laughs> than the actual published book that's waiting yeah. there. But let me, let me just finish up about what I was saying about the Surgeon General's report. So... Kennedy asked those the he asked the Surgeon General to form a panel uh, ten ten experts to look into all of the cigarette studies and decide whether or not cigarettes cause cancer because from 1954 until the early 60s there was a giant fight brewing and then in early 64 they said it's unequivocal smoking causes lung cancer uh, essentially President Carter asked the National Academy of Sciences on a much more abbreviated time horizon to look into all the reports in between June, July 23rd and July 29th, 44 years ago, and say, hey, is it going to happen? Is it not going to happen? And what they wrote was the, the, the results of this brief but intensive uh, review will be reassuring to science, to scientists, but disturbing to policymakers. If carbon dioxide continues to increase, this panel finds no reason to believe climate change will not occur and no reason to believe those changes will be negligible. And, and there, uh, yeah, there's just so many stories like that where I feel like we could have, we could just do a litany of, it's like a drumbeat, 1954, 1963. Like you, you kind of just every decade, every year, there's unequivocal, you know declarations that are that are being made and the parallel drumbeat to that of course is well maybe there's a couple parallel one is just lack of inaction right or total yeah. i mean there's yeah. there's, pl there's plenty of inaction, of inaction. Yeah. No, no lack of it no lack of it but then there's also this other one that is you know industry basically fighting it there's another parallel track of you know lack of political will uh to to do anything about it so you have these sort of 
parallel tracks and you know that they're going to crash at some point. And the one that's going to, you know, lose out is what the scientists have been saying since 1954, 1956, or even going further back. Yeah. And you go, you go way further back into yeah. the sort of invention of like humans and technology in a way, which is that there's going to be some downside to technology being invented. And yes, we can get, you know, in, FaceTime video. We can get a message from here to London in 10 seconds. Like that's a great technology, but there's some cost to it. And with the cost that you start out is carbon, right? Like we're putting carbon into the air with sulfur in some places. Carbon it's so weird. Some... It's like a Rumpelstiltskin fable, isn't yeah. it? Also, um, <laughs> you guys. Um, so when I when I came across just what Matt was saying, I, I knew I had to write the story, and then I also knew. I love what Matt was saying. I knew how encyclopedic uh, the story was going to be. Mm. But am I the only person, Matt? I, I feel that you and I have shared a cigarette or at least shared yeah, an area sure. where there was. I don't, I don't want to sure, you know, no, tell in tales. York, back, in, back in the days, I mean, it's just yeah. like, what else is there to do? Stand on a street corner. <laughs> yes, New York is yeah, known yeah. for its paucity of recreational alternatives. So it's just sure, cigarettes. Yeah. There's or nothing to do. There, that's it. Me. Yeah. That's right. Um, but if you smoke cigarettes, uh, like I remember that um, – when I was uh, like, when I was talking to David, I was going to quote uh, a friend of uh, Wallace's, uh, probably about whom you and I have the same opinion. And I thought, you know what? I'm not going to say that gentleman's <laughs> name. I who um, know who you're talking yeah, about. Yeah. So, <laughs> um, so uh, David said he wrote stuff on nicotine. Very cool that he would put it that way, right? Nicotine for people who used it as a stimulant, like. It speeds things up for you, right? It, it allows you to focus longer. It allows you to stay awake longer. And it's great. It's an enhancement. It makes things go faster, but you have to pay for it later. Mm. And it's no surprise. In a weird way, it's like a fairy tale in that mm. the same people and the same approaches that people use to deny the effects, that long-term effects that tobacco had on the body, that we had the same effect on the planet, which is mm. we could accelerate. Everything is faster because of energy, right? We can get from New York to San Francisco. Used to be, what, 34 days or something like that, and you had to play a video game when you were in grammar school to get from uh, from New York City to Oregon. So you had to factor all that. You um, died yeah, of dysentery. But, yeah. <laughs> uh, but now you can get there six hours, right? Uh, and can then can I do what? one quick sidebar on, on nicotine? Yeah. On nicotine, this is a sidebar, but it came up during the um, – Dave Foster Wallace conference in Gettysburg in June, one of our presenters put a quote up from a Spanish writer named Carlos Busquid, and it was a tweet that said, and I, I might butcher it a little bit as it was originally in Spanish, says, there is nothing more dangerous than a person who does not need an addiction to soften their relationship to the world, for such a person is as hideous as the world itself. <laughs> and it's... It's a yeah. fucking great quote because yeah, I feel like, you know, the, the, the path of becoming an enlightened adult is like, well, it would really be better if you gave up caffeine and alcohol and nicotine. And basically anything fun in life is yeah. bad for you. Yeah. And <laughs> you is there, you know, David's number one addiction, he said, was television. Right? That's right. And it's like there's an addiction that we all have to something. You mentioned this, like we're giving ourselves away to something. There's a common theme here. But there's also this hidden cost of like anything that you're addicted to is not only bad for you, but it's like got some really bad consequences for the world itself at large. Maybe maybe that's too broad of a generalization. But I no, just it's interesting. To, but but let me that say in. that. But like I love the and who's the Spanish writer again? Carlos Busquets. 
Busquets. Can you spell I know it? you don't read uh, Spanish. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Now translation. Translation. Yeah, B-U-S-C-E-T-E. Q-U-E-D. Yeah. Can we call them tweets anymore, by the way? Or are they called uh, X's no, now? X, like, what is, what is the verb? I'm saying, saying tweets, weird. whatever. Yeah. I'm saying I, tweets. Odd. My God, I hadn't thought of that. Um, yeah. But the uh, the planet's use of energy has been amazing. But the, the pace of change, there's a great thing that, um, that Einstein said to Edison at the celebration of the 50th anniversary of electric lighting and thus of uh, human beings use daily use of electricity. He said that the great inventors, uh, among whom you are the greatest, have placed mankind in an entirely new situation to which it has not accommodated itself yet. And so this, like, it's a, it's hard to imagine. Like, 1750, 1850 wouldn't be that different from 1650. Presumably, the witch doctors of the period, right, would you know, if you broke your leg in London in 1650, or if you broke it in 1825. They'd have the equivalent of shaking their rattles over your ailing <laughs> shin longer, but that's basically it. But giant changes between uh, Samuel Morse, eighteen forty-four, and now an unprecedented mm-hmm. pace of change. And yeah. part of part of what's driven it is electricity, yeah. Which and then also our use of our use of fossil fuels to travel places. Now it's astonishing. It's great. What an amazing addiction, but it puts us in an unprecedented spot, which is. No bullshit. It's like a fairy tale problem. You you can spin this straw into gold, which the king needs in the morning. Mm. But twenty or thirty years down the line, there's going to be a cost that's going to be required of you. And we have tried to go. We've tried to go ahead saying there isn't going to be a cost, or maybe it's not true. And that's where we are. But you know, as it, it's a weird thing because. You guys know what magical thinking is, right? Sure. Okay. We, and, we were just uh, talking about uh, our readers, uh, our listeners. I always think of people as readers. That's, that shows that <laughs> that shows my <laughs> my bias in favor of uh, text. Um, so I'm going to assume everyone knows what magical thinking is. You would reject the idea because we get suspicious of any deal that looks too good. If we're Catholic, we think it's our Catholic guilt. If we're Jewish, we think it's our persecution mania. But when we're offered a free lunch. Um, we think this can't be this can't be real, and then we think, isn't it primitive? Isn't it cringing and primitive to think that there's going to be a cost paid? So in a way, sometimes when I've thought about global warming, I've thought it matches too much the basic architecture of our punishment advantage brains. Like we tend to think if we're getting something good, that something we'll, you know we'll have to pay for it, and this seems too obviously that. And so in a way, as a mature person, you think you have to reject this cost. But if you look at it in body terms, it's we have sped things up in a way. Um, what Roger Ravel is famous for saying is that once he understood what we were doing, isn't it cool to bring Ravel back? In this yeah, yeah, there you go. Once he understood in, uh, in late 1956 what we were doing, that the, the carbon dioxide that we were burning was not going to be absorbed by trees and the ocean, but was just going to begin to collect. He said that humankind is in the middle of a grand geophysical experiment of a, ta- of a kind that could not have been performed in the past and could never be repeated in the future. We are returning to the atmosphere all the carbon that had been stored in rocks for millennia. And that's an amazing thing. And so that then is just unprecedented benefit, which is all the fossil fuel. I see you're getting ready to talk, Matt. But then is there's a bill coming, which is hard for us to accept, but also makes a certain kind of fairy tale sense. Well, and I, I, I totally agree. 
a hundred percent with that psychological the sort of biases that we have built in. But maybe what I was saying earlier was a little too simplistic because even with the tobacco example of public health, there is a pretty good ending to that story in that the the use of tobacco has gone down dramatically. Um Thanks in large part due to government regulation of marketing efforts. Yeah, um, but um, but Robert Proctor, who is a great, he's a, a great uh, scientist and a professor at Stanford. He puts a death toll around two hundred million people for tobacco. Yeah, yeah. and, uh, and painful, wow. painful it's way awful. to die, and it's awful. So, and I think yeah. there are other public health examples that at least have had progress made on them. I mean, I was thinking of you know seat belts, drinking and driving. There's a great article I found in the Newsday from like 1980, which you might remember, which was a famous op-ed in Newsday that was called Drinking and Driving Can Mix. And there there, there was actually like deniers for, you know, drinking and driving or wearing seat belts. And like, you know, the big one right now, I feel like is guns as well in the US. And yet there are other countries that have solved this not solved it, but addressed it better. Yeah. And that this is a very sort of U.S. centric approach that we have to dealing with public health in general. Well, but it's because you guys love freedom so much. You, know? <laughs> <laughs> you don't have any freedom up there, do you? Do you no, have any freedom none. up there? Yeah. So you got to ask permission to buy an incandescent light bulb, which <laughs> now banned. Um, but you know what I'm saying, David? Like, there's some choices that we make with you know our our elections and things that have consequences on public health but there are other ones that you know besides climate that i feel like we have made some progress on for the better and that you know that that's what makes this problem so unique you have two quotes in the book at least from people who say you could not have designed a better problem to avoid sort of human psychology than god bless you Matt, for having seen that in fact the problem is so circular that in 1996 uh, an economist at mit says um if you wanted to come up with a problem human beings can't solve oh, yeah, you couldn't find fun. a better one than global warming and the problem itself is weirdly circular. So we keep going through the same process of accumulation of evidence, judicial weighing of that accumulated evidence, decision this is going to happen, and then it falls out of the news, and then 12 to 20 years later it comes back. So it's so circular that towards the end of the book, in 20, I think, 15, the head of the Yale Center for Climate Communication says it's really the worst kind of problem for our underlining mental architecture. Yeah. It's like, yes, such a terrible problem that somebody said the exact same thing. And he didn't know that, right? Yeah, like, he so didn't. He didn't know. Yeah. That, that is how, how deterministic our mental architecture is, is that the same, you know, reputable people, MIT and Yale, pretty interchangeable. To a space alien, they'd be basically the same school. And here are these two people separated by a generation and a half saying the exact same thing. And Still, just what you were saying about denying, I just couldn't resist. This is King James wrote the first, he was mm. the first monarch to right. write a public health treatise. And right. also maybe the first monarch to write an anti-denier essay. <laughs> but he wrote a great thing in 1605 called A Counterblast to Tobacco. And he said, look, it's terrible. It's going to kill people. Yeah. Isn't it great? Yeah. And he said, uh, and he also ran into deniers because what he wrote is, and if a man smoke himself to death with it, and many have done. Oh, then some other disease must bear the blame for that fall. Right. Wow. Like, even back then, it goes back, like being able to 
if you're up doubt about something is a very strong human response. Mm-hmm. Uh, and anybody who grew up watching Jaws, of course, knows that in their bones. <laughs> that was the only the only great joke. I love Paul Feige, but the only great joke in the Ghostbusters remake from 2016 is people keep calling Andy Garcia, who's the mayor of New York in the Ghostbusters reboot. They keep saying he's like the Jaws mayor. And he says, no, don't call me the Jaws mayor. I'm not the Jaws mayor. <laughs> and I love that for some other people, the Jaws mayor is paradigmatic of being told something is going to happen and just going ahead and doing the same action anyway and mm-hmm. sort of crossing your fingers extra hard. It's like shorthand for uh, blind, turning a blind eye almost yeah. intentionally. Mm-hmm. Um, turning a blind bring... eye and an appealing rump at the See? same time. <laughs> <laughs> a meaty rump and a blind eye. No, don't feel anything to a shark um, but you even bringing up King James there is like an example of the encyclopedic nature of the book and you know I love oh, that's Wikipedia that's beautiful by the way Matt that's a beautiful yeah. segue holy <laughs> god let's just pause well, for a second because I was hoping that you would go back there and that well, couldn't I, have been better. So yes, I love it is, Wikipedia yeah. rabbit holes. So I mean, yeah. it was Wikipedia yeah. to me is almost a stand-in for the idea of the encyclopedia. Now I think it is one of the greatest uh, in- inventions of our lifetime, and something I you know I deal with in my day job, which is um, education, is often not the problem for people. Like people, even with their budgeting things, they know like don't spend more than you make, like write out a budget, have a financial plan. Like all these things are very basic, like finance one-on-one that people know, but where people get into trouble is with behavior, right? With psychology and biases that were built into, you know, overconfidence, availability, the hurting instinct that we have. That is actually where like a lot of the more sophisticated education comes in, which is like trying to understand the, the biases and the behavior, like behavioral economics is a relatively new field. Um, and I feel like that with climate in that it's not almost a lack of education about the facts. It's, it's really like our own biases in behavioral. Um, let me shelve that for a minute and go back to the Wikipedia thing, because when you brought up King James, I went from one of your, you've already mentioned Henry, uh, Henry Ford, at some point reading this book, I was on the Wikipedia page for the history of the automobile. And the, that's a great Wikipedia page because the first sentence of it is development of the automobile started in 1672 with the invention of the first steam powered vehicle. And I was like, holy shit, this is some David Lipsky shit right here where they're just like, <laughs> they got to tell the story of the automobile. It's like, let's go back to the 1600s. Right. And I was, you know, I was just seeing, trying to see what was the first car, you know, was it the Ford model T? Was it the Mercedes Benz? And it's like, eh, you really got to go back into the 1600s to have that conversation. Um, it's the which Fred is, Flintstone car. Which is, you know, <laughs> yeah, that's the first one. <laughs> it was not too powered. But by the way, wait, but Dave, here's a weird thing about that, which is one of the beliefs now is that mammals did coexist, and some early hum- like hominids did okay, coexist yeah. with dinosaurs. So all the fun that we've made of people drawing, you know, a man next to a dinosaur, apparently we have to make fun of our of our sense of that, which is weird. I was reading about that the last couple of weeks, but yeah, um, Matt. A friend of mine wrote a history of that. Also, there one of the guys who's one of um, Napoleon's engineers is putting together one of the earliest cars, right? So, yeah, I uh, I was so happy when you 
re-steered our craft back to the encyclopedic nature of the book. I, I knew pretty quickly. I knew that um, that for the book to work, it would have to be it would have to be a book that would be written for people like us to read. Which is yeah. I would add too that it feels very literary. Like you use metaphors in this book with just like a shotgun blast liberality. It is wonderful. I just kept writing in the margins like metaphor, metaphor, metaphor. Uh, like horror movies got it right. You I know? appreciated your <laughs> metaphor <laughs> there, Dave. Um, <laughs> yeah, like so. I just I ended up just writing like metaphors like dozens of times as I read this book, and so. Let's hear them. Well, you, I just wrote them down. Let's hear them. A lot. Um, Happy to hear them. One yeah. I really liked was the two page two thirty eight one about um, horror movies. Got it right. You rattle every door when being pursued. And, yeah, it's uh, so like good, about, isn't it? Marlboro, yeah. the cigarette company, and just let, yeah. yeah. No, that guy. So the guy who's doing that there, he's a vice president for Marlboro, and the thing that's going to kill them, and it's going to lead to them supporting the most effective climate deniers from the beginning is that uh, the EPA has classed secondhand smoke as a group A carcinogen. So if you're sitting next to somebody on an airplane and they're smoking, you're smoking. And so it's what they've feared this for 10 years, and they feared it since the cigarette emergency began. And so it's just like a horror movie. You will rattle every door. This vice president gathered 900 editors of historically African-American publications, black publications, and he said, if we want to keep bias out of American life, you have to protect smokers because, you know, and then he, he goes for it. He says, today, my right to smoke might be a, might be under attack. Tomorrow, it will be the rights of underrepresented minorities. Like, you would actually do that. Right. Shocking. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm, right. I'm, I was. Yeah. Well, yeah. Here's another good one. Page 357. Uh, there turned out to be a reason. Moncton had been diagnosed with Graves disease. It gives the Lord's eyes their look of perpetual emphasis, as if he is forever disputing a tennis line call, staring down an argument, or alerting a friend to an open fly. Um, <laughs> all the stuff about Lord Monckton in this book is just yeah. fascinating. Like, what an interesting character. And, like, not in a good way, necessarily, obviously. He's a villain, but he's, like, an interesting villain, you know? Uh, all the stuff about his puzzle that he made and offered a million dollars to first solve it. That was <laughs> that was so intriguing. There's so many just like weird little sidebars in this book that are so, so what, what Dave is talking about is one of the interesting things like the deniers who have kept the planet. It's an amazing like if you, you know, presumably we will solve this problem in the next 20 to 100 years or there won't be people to look back with fondness and impatience on this period. Yeah. Excuse me, the way we look back with fondness and impatience and incredulity and shame at the past. Yeah. Um, but one of the things that will interest them is it's like something like uh, Justice League of America if it was just Batman who's not powered. <laughs> like the deniers, when they give their membership, one of the main deniers says there's really just 25 of us doing this. It's, right. it's very ragtag, right? Mm -hmm. They frustrated the national will and the international will, right? Because America was the number one polluter until I think 2008 when China took that, uh, mm. that very smudgy crown from us. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but still America was required. Like Europe said, we're, we're turning to America to play its essential role in leading, you know, 
leading the organization for fighting climate change, and 25 people. That's all it took to frustrate the will of the world. Mm. That is astonishing. And so when you look at the people, it's even more astonishing. Um, <laughs> a man named Viscount Christopher Bogdan was the lead denier. He became the lead denier from about 2007 on. Mm -hmm. And like all the other deniers, he has uh, a surprising backstory. He just wanted to be in parliament and he has a beautiful, like, beautiful Hugh Grantish accent. I think that's his basic quality. He has, yeah, oh, okay. he would have the accent that, yeah, he has a, he just sounds like, certainly for people here, and I imagine for people in England, it's a voice that you're, in the same way that dogs are primed if you speak in a loud voice or if you rattle a can of change, they're primed to sit down and take you seriously. His voice <laughs> sounds so educated. Uh, that was the basic mm. gift he had, but he was clearly crazy. Um, and so he tried right. to be in parliament. Uh, he tried to be in government, couldn't get elected to parliament. And then when he failed to, uh, when he when he realized he couldn't be elected and when he was asked to leave uh, Mrs. Thatcher's government, um, he then claimed that his Graves disease, he does have Graves disease, that that had required him to be sidelined. So that's the way he would present his story in the press as he had had this very promising career. Um, but then, like, he tried to become an editorial writer, and he was the kind of editorial writer who, in the late 80s, would say, Martin Amos, for example, who I know you guys just did a story on, he was writing about AIDS in that decade. He said, look, the only answer is we're all in this together. And that is one kind of writer. Christopher Moncton said, we have to round up anybody who tests positive for AIDS and sequester them on island. It won't be inhumane. There can be supervised visits towards them from family members and other loved ones. Um, then he was forced out of that job. Uh, then he claimed that he was sidelined by his grave disease, but he kept getting like speeding tickets on his motorcycles. <laughs> and then he came up with an idea for a puzzle. He could do something that would out Rubik's Cube, Rubik's Cube. And so he mm. said, this can't be solved. You know, he put a huge amount of money into it and said, there'll be a million dollar prize. Especially by yeah. math, mathematicians. Yeah, exactly. Computers. No mathematicians. <laughs> and, and, and then yeah. <laughs> it'll take at least Those two years. And yes, it. Two, two Oxford mathematicians with their computer solve it. One of, the, one of the members of the solving duo is concerned one of the 10 best mathematicians in the world. And that he has to pay <laughs> out. And so then he has to sell the castle liquidate castle. castle. <laughs> and, yeah. It's such Isn't, a great and story. Then someone says, hey, you seem like a mighty smart fellow. Would you look into climate change? And he's the kind of person who says, you know, I, I, uh, I, I don't think you can do all your learning in libraries. So he says later on that he spent about a month rootling around in the research. And then he published that he sent this report to the fellow who had hired him to say climate change wasn't going to happen. And his friend was impressed with it and gave it to the Daily Telegraph, I think. And it's just the news everybody would want to read in 2009. The science says this isn't going to happen. And look, we're all, we all would like to keep spinning fossil fuels into gold and never have to pay rubble stilts get anything, right? People were so thrilled by it. There were so many hits within the first 24 hours that it crashed the newspaper server. And then this man who had failed at everything else in his life was and had no scientific training he was launched as the lead denier for about a decade and when people would ask him what his qualifications were 
you would say, well, I invented the eternity puzzle. That was the name of his puzzle that was solved within the year. Yeah. And so that makes me a mathematician. <laughs> I have a question written down. Who, for you, David, is, is the most likable villain or the most like colorful villain in this book? And I would say Moncton probably is, would be mine. Yeah, the, um, the, most, the most colorful. Yeah, he's also in a weird way. The most benign, although what he's saying is awful by the time you guys, yeah, yeah you guys so have dealt awful, with totally. people who will maintain an argument. And then uh, there's a great moment. Do you guys read Joan Didion? I, I, I think we I've read talking her. about her a little bit. I've read her all, but like I have mixed feelings, to be honest. A little bit. Uh, Matt, what are your mixed feelings? I'm uh, she's too conservative. <laughs> she's pretty conservative. And yeah. Her politics. And yeah. um insular in a lot of ways i mean i think she's a fantastic writer at the sentence level i'm very interested in a lot of you know her her memoirs later in life are just gorgeous uh and i really love you know the book she did with her husband monster john gregory did in, uh, uh, john gregory dunn about the the movie but uh, you know a, a lot of her uh, i guess i've been influenced by our mutual friend maria bustillos who really hates didion um, anyways, I, I, I really, I can, I can see some of both sides on her, but you tell us no, how that you love her. So. Yeah, no, it's hard not to be influenced by Maria because everything she says is so passionate. Convincing. Yeah, 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 exactly. So I, I just had the benefit of not having had that. Yeah. Well, don't, uh, just, just don't. Yeah. Yeah. She's, um, she's talking, she wrote a great piece. She was one of the only people who knew that the Central Park Five were innocent. And how do you not love a writer? Everybody else is saying they're guilty and they should be strung up. And she literally is the only reporter, only writer I know to have said it in print and at length, I don't think these guys are guilty. But she was talking in that essay, it's called Sentimental Journeys, and it's collected in, you know, Prime Diddy, Vintage Diddy and the Vintage Collection of Her Best Stuff. I love that she put that in there. I assume it's her greatest hits that she's the curator. Um, but there's, she's talking about how crimey New York was in the 80s. And so she said that she and her husband were chased into one of those electronic stores that they have around Times Square. You know, they always have like going out of business, sign in the window, et cetera. And they wrote in, they said, do you, you know, can you call the police? We're being chased by a large number of people. And the guy behind the counter says, oh, yeah, you know, the criminals, they prey on tourists like you. And then she said, no, my husband and I were New Yorkers. And then the guy instantly segues. And he says, well, that's why they didn't catch you, because you're New Yorkers. <laughs> so one of the interesting things about, like, socially, we know that people who commit to a lie, they can never then say, okay, you got me. Right? That, I think that hasn't happened outside of the Western in American life. Yeah. Maybe certainly like either the 1890s or 1880s of movies or just the 1880s or 1890s of our country. But there was a great thing, Jim, the Renata Adler, who is very much like... Speedboat, yeah. Yeah. She said there's a great line from her book, Speedboat, which I think this chapter is set in like 75. She said the jig was never up. Like you never had to say, I did it, right? So someone like Lockton, once he's confronted with the data, he just says, okay, it is happening, but it's better just to sit back, relax, and enjoy the sunshine. And so that's the only thing. When you were saying like he's the most fun one in a way something about him saying that like okay it is going to happen but we shouldn't do anything that 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 gets my blood up um dave what did you That's what did you make yeah. of Delipool? Mm -hmm. um 
Remind me again. There's still there's like a Polish lot of the, figures in this the, book. He's right? the he's the Martin Amos. He's the Martin Amos super fan. He is the he's the last he's the last denier to get their story told. So he comes at the end of the book. He right. um he's someone who loved Martin Amos so much that Which he I, would go up to Amos okay. at a party and he would say, you know, people say I look a bit like you. Do you think I look a bit <laughs> like you? <laughs> and uh, if he kept really wanting to become like Amos. And then when that didn't work, it's a little bit for him the way it is for Moncton. When Moncton couldn't get into Parliament and when he didn't make the money from selling yeah. the Eternity Puzzle and he had to pay out the million dollars, um, then he changed mm -hmm. to denial. Um, Delicpole really wanted to be Martin Amos. And then when that didn't work, uh, climate denial offered him a different avenue to right. Yeah. Fame so it's page like four thirty one. Yeah, where, where a lot yeah. of this stuff is occurring. Um, yeah. Okay, and that that that's one of the ones that uh, Dilling Pole probably is among the ones that made me most angry. Weirdly, okay, I have yeah, affection, okay. Dave. I have affection for Fred Singer. Just yeah. because the Fred Sanger story touches so many weird parts of the country. The Moonies, the Moonies. <laughs> yeah, Moonies, the Moonies. Yeah, the Moonies section is phenomenal in this book. I thank love you. Um, that. Yeah, that's uh, really good. I should have. Um, the Mautu, DeLillo. Oh, wasn't that great to have there? that in there? Oh, yeah. yeah, so great. Um, like, the transfix stare. He's going right? to say Mautu, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's what I see. You knew it was coming. That's great. Yeah, yeah. I read the writing. That's totally great. That. Um, but like Fred Singer's story, and that's like when I said earlier that um, once you once you cross the three hundred, the page three hundred, the page four hundred barrier, mm -hmm. your self depiction shifts from writing a book about climate change from writing a book about America. Right. Uh, in this case, it's defensible. Like Fred Singer's story, that that's the section where the text gets to quote Joe Didion. She's right. talking about the former bishop of California. And she said about him, his journey took him through every charlatanic thicket of American life. <laughs> and I love that. Come on, how do you not love Joe? Let's get Maria. I think this, she's man. a Californian. Yeah. You know, there's a New York Joan Didion, then there's a California Joan Didion. And I think Joan Didion during the Reagan years, you know, there was a sort of haze over her politics. And I think you can look at it differently, but. Um, I, I have uh, nothing good or bad. I'm not going to go. I'm not going to go down this road, David. I'm not. I'm not going to. Not going to take debate. <laughs> I'm not going to take debate. But uh, okay, I, I do yeah, go ahead, to, to bring because you're bringing up um, um, Fred Singer and, and the Mooney stuff. Yeah. To go back a little bit in the book to just before that, when we're in the thick of the tobacco wars, um, there's yeah. a guy. Uh, Gary Kelly Huber. Huber. And so Huber yeah. ends up in my hometown, which is Tyler, Texas. That's where I grew up. And so wow. I was wow. like, What's okay, this is a true encyclopedic novel in that you have a story about Tyler Junior College, which is where my brother John went for a year. And like the, the, uh, this is like page 230, I flagged it. And, you know, this is a sort of guy who maybe did say he was wrong or change his mind about tobacco. Like I wasn't really sure you kind of talk around him a bit and that he changed in some way, right? He sort of landed in the middle of nowhere, kicked out by these Harvard scientists who were looking to defend the tobacco industry. Like t tell his arc a little bit. Cause I think it does get to that. Yeah. I was actually going to, I was going to read the last page of that. Yeah. I think it's funny. Um, yeah, but do. Matt, yeah, Matt and Dave, like you guys, understand who I wrote the book for. First off, it was just, I thought that the only way to, since misunderstanding 
served both the people who wanted to keep cigarette smoking legal and really served once that strategy, once that strategy was clear and pioneered, clearly effective mm -hmm. and available for study by fossil fuel um, and then promulgated, right? Mm -hmm. Used by fossil fuel with the same personnel who had done it for cigarettes. It's clear that just misunderstanding serves shitty people. Yeah, like sure, go for it. Fuck it. Yeah, please do. Fuck it. Yeah, no, so it just seemed like, and misunderstanding, and also the idea that it would be too hard to learn about it served people who didn't want to do anything. So I thought, okay, I want to do a book for people who just like to read. And we need them not them not knowing about this issue has allowed the issue to persist. Mm -hmm. And if if I can get the people like me, like Matt, like Dave, like Maria to read this story, yeah. then that can we can presumably they can they'll they'll watch when you guys watch the news or read a news story now, you know exactly what the game is that's being mm -hmm. played, right? Yeah. You know exactly what the arguments are. You can tell what the what what political strategy it's like what it's like watching people play chess if you understand all the chess openings you're mm -hmm. like they're not going to use the international argument again or i can't <laughs> believe that they're right. really going to try that mm -hmm. um so yeah i uh the reason it has those stories and i love what you were saying about an encyclopedic novel is i wanted to write something like the godfather that would just be an effing see i i, yeah, I, I it's fine go ahead person. it would be a fucking mm -hmm. thrill just to read you would read it, you would love the story. And then you would also have learned both how we were a polluted country, right? Because it also tells the story of pollution and how that was controlled. One of the great comedy things, I'll get to Huber. Huber is 40 That's seconds fine. away. Bring it in, bring it in. It's like the it's like on the old HBO when they would say the movie's going to drop <laughs> in 40 seconds. Um, one of the great gags, it's such a weird story we've been living is that uh, we got so polluted from 1940 to about 1985 that it was hiding global warming. And so when the clean air, when the clean air acts internationally began to clear the skies, that's when the warming really started to speed up. Now tell me that's not wild. So here's what I mean about that. So I'm going to push Huber back another 60 seconds. And this is in the book, and it was really fun to write about. Do you guys know what the year without a summer was? Yeah. Was that the, the not Mount, Mount, yeah, Mount, Mount Pinatubo? That was, that was July no. for me. Yeah. No, no, but no, Pinatubo. Yeah, Pinatubo is, uh, we got a year, we got a year with a very strong winter out of that, and that messed up mm. global warming. You're right. By the way, there's, this is, Dave, did you laugh at this joke, which is, at a certain point, you have to accept that God seems not to want there to be a solution to global warming. It's <laughs> like, yeah, in the early 90s, when when the science was coming together and uh, some people in the House of Representatives, senators, and all the scientists were signing on, uh, Mount Pinatubo uh, blew up the spring of 92. Yeah. Okay. Um, Maybe ninety three. I should know that, but uh, I have I have the rest. The other volumes of the encyclopedia are budding, you know, budding for space on the shelf. Essentially, volcanoes put so much sulfur dioxide into the atmosphere that they will change how much sunlight we get. Yeah. And the biggest example of that, uh, when there are dependable records, is Mount uh, Tambora, which went up, I think, in the spring of eighteen sixteen. And for a year, the next year, there was no summer. And it caused mm -hmm. food shortages. So about 200,000 people died across Europe. There were food riots. They were eating moss and clover uh, in Switzerland. And in England, um, the writers who were surrounded around Shelley and Byron, they 
went indoors for the summer. And when they came out, this is this, the year without a summer is 1817. They had invented the horror genre. That was the year that Mary Shelley wrote Frankenstein uh... because all the lighting was weird and scary. And Byron's physician wrote a book called The Vampire, which is where Dracula comes from. But when something giant like that happens, it will change culture going forward. Hmm. Um, now, that's because volcanoes just spray a huge amount of sulfur dioxide into the atmosphere. Hmm. That essentially is what smokestacks do. Uh, all the terrible pollution that we had, uh, like they can say, weirdly enough, they can say what date smog started in Los Angeles. I believe mm -hmm. it's July 8th, 1943. The reason why there wasn't smog before that was you had industrial activity, but not tremendously focused uh, industrial activity. And during World War II, uh, the number of factories in LA went, this is why I don't have the year from Mount Penitubo. Uh, the number of factories in LA went from uh, from 1,500 to about 8,500. And so within, I guess, about a year and a half of the war starting, all of a sudden you had smog. Right. And smog is just a way of, you know, sulfur dioxide and other things hiding the earth from sun. Um, once Clean Air Act, uh, once Clean Air, Clean Air Act policies and prohibitions began to take effect, Clean Air Act comes into EPA and the uh, Clean Air Act first one is in the 60s, uh, were restrictive in the 70s. Once it actually begins cleaning up the air in the 80s, the sulfur dioxide is cleared out, right? Because we have less smokestack pollution and the warming really picks up mm. from about 85, 88 to now. Now that to me is hysterical and it's part of what I mean about the weird fear of uh, the weird fear slash feel of living in a fairy tale. Like, okay, you can have your clean air back, but, but. in fact, it's going to speed up the warming. And before I get to humor, one last thing about that is the solution. The first solution we'll see to, to, to warming before anything else is Edward Teller, who was one of the people who helped uh, develop the hydrogen bomb, and uh, Wallace Broker, who's one of the great early climate scientists. What they both began to advocate in the 90s is we have to get a fleet of jumbo jets and fill them with sulfur dioxide dust and have them go into the stratosphere and just dump it out the sides of the airplanes to simulate pollution so that we can cool the earth down for a year or two. David, and that have you read... Yeah, have you read Kim Stanley Robinson's book, The Ministry for the Future? No, I but just it's about read that, that right, right yeah. before yeah, reading this book, yeah. and so yeah, yeah. it was a very serendipitous moment of these two books back to back. And India, the country, does that in that yeah. book because there's a heat wave that kills uh, like hundreds of thousands yeah. of people in the semi-distant future. Yeah. Um, so that, those are all part of um, those are all part of the encyclopedic and cool thing of telling this story and then the way to tell the story was also to have narratives uh in a way that's not dissimilar Matt, to the narratives of the people who were at Edit House, uh the narratives of the people who both found the science and also lied about the science mm -hmm. so yeah huber so gary huber is just one of the foot soldiers and it's just it's a it's a short story it's about two thousand words right and he's just someone who comes from intense poverty. He's from the Pacific Northwest. And this detail, everyone, all so my friends, when the they paste? were reading the... Oh, my God. Yes, it's oh, impossible. Yeah, yeah. When I read that, I was his like, mom, yeah. that is poor, man. Yeah. Yeah. So, so his mother <laughs> took a job as a wallpaper because she could... Yeah. So she could job. eat the wallpaper paste. It's insane. Right. Well, yeah. And, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, yeah, and their, their home had dirt floors. And then 
uh, Gary Huber was tall and a good athlete, and so he rebounded and foul shot his way to Harvard Medical School. And then while he was there in the 70s, he reached out to tobacco and wrote a series of seductive letters, which made it clear to tobacco that he would do the research the way they wanted it done. Right. And so he attracted a lot of attention. He attracted a lot of funding, rather, to Harvard. The tobacco industry, they understood that they would lose the argument. And so the basic thing, and this will be familiar to anybody who has ever been with a dealt with a parent or a kid who doesn't want there to be a decision reached or has ever dealt with a lover, the idea was not to prove what uh, was not to contest the outcome of the argument. The idea was to keep the argument going. Have you guys had just boyfriends or girlfriends? Where it's just, yeah, yeah, exactly. No, but it's, it's great. Like, let's say, for example, your, uh, your partner wants you to buy a car or they want you to go on a vacation that you know is just ruinously expensive or that you've met, you're working on some book and you know that in February, that's going to be a period when you have to do a lot of work on the book, right? But you also don't want to piss off your partner. Yeah. Right? What you'll come up with is, let's let's keep thinking about this. Let's not reach a decision now. And then by January, you'll be like, that's too late to buy tickets. So let's, you know what, let's think about this for another year, right? So we all are familiar with that strategy. That was the strategy that was taken by tobacco by that tobacco was then and, yeah. wonderfully copied by fossil fuel, which is the idea yeah. wasn't to win the argument. The idea was to keep the argument going. Yeah, exactly. And more so research saw, is needed. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So when they saw Gary Huber, they were like, think what it's going to look like for us in, 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 uh, in public relations stuff. We can say our public affairs offices can say, clearly it's, it's not absolutely firm that tobacco causes cancer or why would Harvard medical school be taking our money <laughs> to study the problem. Yeah. And so uh, he he worked for them for about eight years on what was called the Harvard Project, and every tobacco CEO would visit because they're at Harvard, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, Harvard, which all, all these Harvard politicians and Harvard doctors have been making, you know, been giving them hot feet, right? They've been making their lives unpleasant. And now suddenly they can go and visit and they can go to the Harvard club. And uh, he becomes very close to the main lawyer who's defending tobacco. And, you know, they're they're flying him everywhere. One of the great quotes in that section is that somebody else who worked on that effort says, um, on a daily basis, uh, you know, on, a, on an annual basis, it made me un uncomfortable what we were doing. But uh, it made me uncomfortable to think about our actions. But when people keep flying you first class, it tends to keep you doing what it is you're doing. Mm -hmm. um, but Huber was in a certain way fundamentally honest. And so his research led him to saying, hey, this is causing emphysema. Yeah, that, that, that quote, yeah. uh, by the way, reminded me very much of an old Upton Sinclair quote that, that's no, uh, it's it's great, difficult to get a man to understand something when his salary depends on his not understanding it. <laughs> and I thought of that yeah. a lot when I worked for an educational assessment company that did all the standardized testing uh, in Texas and mm. in other states as well. And I would sometimes get into arguments with people who were very much anti standardized testing and i felt like you know i'm working at like a communist child <laughs> pornographer company you know in their minds every everyone hated my company so much and i was like defending it in a way that's like well i had to admit my salary did depend on me defending it right like in a way uh, i was very much had drank the kool-aid on it because i had to if i wanted to pay the rent i needed to 
toe the company line in some way. But I and I also sort of like when you work in a field, let's say you work in the hospital business and you're in the hospital every day and then you go and read some newspaper article written by someone who spent a day there. I'm sure you're this way with West Point, right? Like you live at West Point for four years. You go and meet someone who is like, oh, yeah, I spent a couple hours there. I think it sucks. And you're just like, well, you don't know what you're talking about, right? And, you know, you would feel this for whatever industry you're in. And it could be tobacco. It could be, you know, climate science. But, you know, you know that, that, that idea that, like, I, I could see how those tobacco scientists would get sucked into it in a way, is that it, if they do want to keep flying first class, if you do want to have a job, maybe keep doing what they're telling you to do. And it's very hard to see a way out of that. I would also add to that, and I, I wonder if you felt this too, like another one of the deniers I tried to tell stories, Dave, of people at every level of denial. So there would be a corporate, someone from the corporate world, right? Mm -hmm. Then there would be someone, that's Ellen Merlot, is who I was talking about with regard to what Matt was saying. With regard to only people on a certain world would understand <laughs> how funny it is to say with, with, with respect to. Um, to yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, um, and then uh, with Phil Cooney, it's someone who's working for government doing it, right? But for Ellen Merlot, it's like what Matt was saying, you know your coworkers and you know they're basically decent, even if what they're doing maybe isn't right. And so you step forward to protect them that way. It is it's difficult. Mm. And and it and it these these kinds of problems tap into even some of the good sides of our basic psychology in a way that can be devastating to the common wheel. Yeah. I think about about the tobacco guys, the the narrator of the book. Um, and the person who goes around talking about the book is different than the person who wrote the book. <laughs> wow, that's an interesting uh, uh, well, idea. Look, look, if you want. Um, so do you guys, you guys, I'm sure I'm looking at you and I see you're both big Henry James fans. Uh, I'm not as big as you, but I'm, I'm a fan. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But do you I'm, remember the story? I'm vaguely um, familiar with stuff yeah. as a result yeah. of doing certain scholarship stuff. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So he wrote, uh, it, I think there's a collection called The Private Life and Other Stories. Um, he, uh, in the second half of the middle part of his career, he wrote ghost stories, and he also wrote, like, charming... Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, yeah. Uh, those were, there was just, there was a big, there was a vogue yeah, for ghost yeah, stories. Wharton wrote them, too. Hmm. Um, but he also wrote, like, charming science fiction, Richard, Richard Matheson, Twilight Zone stories. Hmm. One of them is The Private Life, which is one of my favorite James stories, and so slyly I found a way to quote it in the book, just to show how batches ended up being really useful for uh, for cigarettes to launch mm. so uh henry james i think in 1891 said my head was a uh, on my matchbook in my pocket which i always carried so i could smoke wherever i needed to and for me it was the fun of quoting <laughs> my favorite yeah. henry james story year uh, how uh, i know that robert browning comes up in every episode sure uh, and his wife Sorry. elizabeth <laughs> browning for sure yeah, <laughs> yeah. naturally um, but uh, but Browning was incredibly was was to them uh, one of those beautiful voices like Nabokov where you can't get over just how lovely his language is. I don't hear it probably the same way that that Henry James or Wharton would have heard it. But apparently, really impressive and charming as a literary voice. But then in his personality, he was just like a drummer, um, which I think is like a twenties or a thirties word for like a heavy salesman of their own stuff. Uh, like <laughs> almost a way that's coarse, like always uh, yeah. upselling his own achievements and always talking about the uh, sales or about, I guess, do poets, 1870s poets talk about sales. <laughs> but it was shocking how wonderfully aesthetic his writing is. 
and just how pedestrian he was as a human. Mm. And so in the story, it's just something that James kept noticing in his notebook. And so in the story, the narrator is at the table, or to use Jamesian phrasing, the narrator is at table with the character who is like uh, Browning, and he gets up for uh, for an indisputable need or something that you couldn't mention the bathroom. <laughs> there were no, there were no, no, uh, no third person or first person phrasing for lavatories existed between, I guess, 1810 <laughs> and uh, about 1910. Because uh, books were pretty outspoken, like uh, Rabelais is basically all about trying to find Bathos. proper accoutrements for <laughs> bathrooms. Yeah. Um, but he goes to the bathroom, clearly, and he's coming back and he gets lost in this big house and he walks down a hall that is different than the one he was walking up and there's a light from a door about two-thirds of the way down the hall and he peers in and there is Browning. There's stacks of manuscripts and stacks of books and, and like thrown away pens because the poet's been writing so hard and he's not well shaven. This is my imagination. His hair is all wild. And he looks at the Henry James character incuriously. And then he gets back to his writing. And then the Henry James character is shocked. And he walks back to the table and the other Browning is still there. And he realizes that, in fact, it's not just that they're different personalities. There are literally two different people. There is the person who talks about the work and tries to sell the work. And then there's the person who actually does the work. And I thought it was kind of great for James to have felt that. So that's you. That, that's, that's you. What okay. I was saying, yeah. Which is, yeah. So the, yeah. So the narrator of the book points out that in a way, these people were really great. It wasn't that they were disloyal to the rest of the country by pushing on people a product that would end up killing a hundred or 200 million humans worldwide. It's just that they got too skilled at the <laughs> people who she knew were great, even though what they were doing was terrible. Mm-hmm. Anyway, Huber's, Huber's problem isn't so much that. Huber just, when uh, when he gets to the point he's been enjoying the company of these people, they've been introducing him to senators and to when the Israeli prime minister comes, they introduce uh, Huber to the prime minister, the head of the tobacco defense program, the, the lawyer who develops their hard shell strategy is teaching him how to be a witness. Um, he mentions, you know, this really isn't the safest thing. Bang, everything's over. Right. <laughs> and then they, they end the funding. He then goes, he ends up at Tyler Junior College with just um, with just his Harvard chair. He brings his Harvard chair with so, him, which I found so touching. So I was sad, probably there right? at the same time as him. And I will bring this around to another character in the book, which was, Tyler Junior College, 1992, was the time where I saw uh, Bill Clinton and Al Gore on their bus tour across the United States. After the Democratic National Convention, they went on a bus tour, Bill and Hillary, Al and Tipper Gore, and they made all these stops all across the U.S. And we went out. My brother, John, drove me out to Tyler Junior College, and the bus pulls up. Bill and Al get off the bus in their rolled up shirt sleeves and, you know, give this great talk. And like, I feel like we could have talked for an hour about Al Gore. Um, Al Gore plays a pretty big role in the book. And in a way, a lot of the book is like a a linear 
um, a somewhat linear political history. And, you know, obviously we see the same cyclical pattern that you're talking about earlier where things get brought up, even, you know, Nixon and the EPA, and then there's, well, we need to do more research. And, you know, surprisingly, even the first Bush, right, he's like more determined than his predecessor to make some kind of a change. But in the end, you know, and I was also thinking earlier when you were talking about Hoover of this moment where Stephen Chu under Obama starts saying something a little bit off message and Rahm Emanuel knocks him on his ass of saying, get back on message, you know, shut up. Don't, don't be talking about how this could be bad. Don't use the word climate, all of that sort of message. There's weird. great stories in there. And, you know, mm-hmm. I, I have probably tons of more of these I could go through, but really the last, one of the last, if not the last question I want to ask you is about um, boiling the frog. And, you know, if you could design a climate book to come out this summer, pretty good choice, right? And that I'm sure that that's helped you. It's in the news every day. It's all anyone in Austin, Texas can talk about today is how fucking hot it is. And we're going to break the record for hottest summer in Austin history. We're going to Phoenix is the hottest summer in Phoenix history we thought we had had it bad in 2011 here where it was 110 every day for 20 days in a row. We're probably going to double that record this summer. And so it's just, you know, absolutely excruciating. We're at now. And you have this analogy of boiling the frog. You bring this up uh, in a pretty interesting chapter of, you know, we've turned it up. We've turned it up. Eventually, there is something that jolts the frog out of the water, right? You get to some point where you're jolted into action. Do you think there is something that will jolt us into action? Like, is it this summer of breaking records? What is that jolt? Um, The scientists thought that it would be something like this. So uh, with the ozone thing that happened in the 80s and 90s. Oh, yeah, the CFCs and stuff. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, we were using a product for uh, shaving cream and, and hairspray, and hairspray. It would, yeah, and hairspray, and it would just you you would you know you'd press that nozzle on top of the can. Uh, James Bond will use it if he is being menaced by a snake in a hotel room uh, in the southern hemisphere. Uh, we think the snake has him, but then he will turn around and he will hold his cigar to the front of the spray can, and it becomes a flamethrower. Um, so that's those are the CFC cans. It turned out that these charming things we're eating away at the ozone layer, which is like the suntan lotion that keeps the earth, keeps everyone on earth from getting skin cancer and also cows. Mm-hmm. Uh, other mammals will get skin cancer in, in New Zealand. That is still the greatest affliction for cows is skin cancer caused by the damage that we did to the ozone. Learning that, I remember the New York Times had a great editorial that came out, I think in the later 70s. And they said that learning that our shaving creams and our deodorants and our hairspray could could eat away at something necessary like that was like learning that eating candy causes earthquakes right yeah yeah so what happened was no one they knew that it would be bad but they didn't know the form the badness would take and then Within about a year, 
this problem that could not be solved by diplomacy was ironed out in what was called the, Mo the Montreal Protocols, and everyone banned those gases over about a 20-year period. Now, to people in government who understood that the biggest fight was going to be about climate change, um, they were very anxious about that deal because they knew that it would become the format for, for deals to come about global warming. Um, so what the scientists have always hoped since the late 80s, uh, I think the Montreal Protocol comes in in 89, they assumed something like that would happen for climate <sighs> because the scientists who knew about climate had known about it since the 50s. Um, there's a, one of my favorite quotes in the book, and it's in, the, it's in, that, first, it's in that first set of quotes. Um, and then, Matt, I want to show you something about what the fun is of writing a long book, which I'll show you, which is in the, the table of contents for the book, um, just because I was yeah. thinking about the quotes. But this quote from the, the Shola the Roland, who won the Nobel Prize for the ozone research, he said this great thing, which I think applies to so many avenues of our daily lives and absolutely applies to our national scientific life. He said, what's the point of having developed a science well enough to make predictions? If in the end, all you're willing to do is sit around and wait for the predictions to come true. Yeah, that um, comes out but, a few times. Yeah, mm -hmm. but um, but what the um, what the climate scientists saw is when there's an emergency, you get the So the climate scientists, for better or worse, knew that it would take something like the last two summers, and especially this summer. Problem is, it's not like Westeros. Our summers only last from May until October. I mean, to me, I was disturbed. You didn't think you'd be going to George <laughs> Um I was really disturbed when there was no snow for the first time. Uh, in a winter in my lifetime, and I think in you know, 70 years, there was no snow in New York City this year. Um, but when the heat ends, just the way we are organized as people, this is what that MIT economist and also what the professor from the Yale Center for Climate Change Communication meant, our, our attention will be directed somewhere else. So I don't know. I would like to think that this summer will lead that way. But the frog, this was a pleasure for me to write. In the so uh, Al Gore uses an analogy which has become so well used now that when people bring it up, I roll my <laughs> eyes a little bit. Do you guys do? It's like it's that frog thing, which is you guys, Dave, you know this analogy, which is if you put a frog in boiling water, it just jumps right out because it sets the danger. But if you put a frog in lukewarm water or chilly water and just yeah room temperature, yeah, uh, the, the frog will boil without realizing that's happened. And so the magazine, business magazine, Fast Company, they just thought they would check that Actually amount. test that, yeah. Yeah. Like the one that's put in hot water jumps out, I think, in 1.5 seconds. Mm -hmm. And the one that's put in slightly heating water is out within four and a half seconds. Mm -hmm. So the funny thing is the only creatures that will do that if slowly heating water is humans. They're the only people. <laughs> Even frogs won't do it. Uh, yeah. that's, that's why I love when you brought it up. That's one of the points of the book is that only us, but I think finally even we are noticing how hot the water has gotten. Well, and, and at the end there, you, you have a chapter that starts where, where you say, you know, writing this book can make an unpleasant person, unpleasant. right? And and I think <laughs> it, it's yeah. also, you know, it's unpleasant to spend so much time around unpleasant people, but it's also like deeply existentially like depressing in a way that is, it can be hard to articulate. I don't know if you feel like that, that level of depression or, or hopelessness. 
Oh God! Wait, wait, no, Despair, Matt. Wait a second. Yeah. Well, let's just talk about it now. Uh, Dave, you've had less time to read the book, but I, I kept sending Matt <laughs> copies of this book. It manuscript. Oh, there. okay, I didn't know that. Okay. So he's had cool. a huge amount of time. Okay, um, Matt, I, I wanted to make this book as fun as anything anyone could read this year, it, and it is totally like, fun. And and I'm saying it, it has led me to still feel depressed and. Not not that the book makes me depressed, but thinking about what you just said of like no snow in New York City, 120 degrees in Austin, like that the the facts are depressing, not not the not the yeah. book. My sense is that um, the Kim Stanley Robinson, do I have his name? Am yeah, I yeah. saying his name properly? Yeah, that's right. Like they are going to try that experiment, and it will work. It will just it'll it'll cause some trouble. Like yeah. the sky will be white. Yeah. Um, does, does Robinson write the sky as white over India when they do the experiment? Like it turns it white, which is mm-hmm. weird. I th- yeah, um, and th- I think it would probably. just be a freakish yeah. thing, right? Yeah. Um, it's depressing because we're people, but it's also like we're people. I mean, are you depressed when you watch Hamlet or Lear? It's more like this is, what, um, this is what we are as a species, and we can do amazing. Life. Yeah, exactly. This is, and we can we can uh, invent problem-solving machines that also cause long-term problems. And so to me, it's weird, actually. Like, um, one of the things that I thought was interesting about Wallace, about David Wallace, is that um, he seemed, he understood what people were like, and it seemed to cause him great unhappiness, mm-hmm. right? Like, um, like the shortest chapters in brief interviews uh, the brief history of post-industrial life that yeah. one never knew why, well, you know, now did one, now, now did, did one, one, now, now did, did one. Yeah. yeah. Like you can also find that extremely funny Yeah, because it's just, it's humanity repeating its yeah. firmware. I showed so, that to my English nine class this year and they were just kind of dumbfounded. By it. <laughs> <laughs> They're a little young, but like, I, yeah. I, I, I'm, not, I'm honestly not an extreme depressive, but I do have two kids and I, you know, you hear this of like, well, we don't want to leave this sort of fucked up world for our kids. And I guess I've been rethinking that lately of saying that that to me is a cop out in a lot of ways to say, well, we've already left them with a pretty fucked up situation. Like, forget when I'm gone, when I'm here now and my kids are, you know, in their 20s and I'm still around, their lives are going to be. We're talking today about like, do we move somewhere cooler? Like, you know, like Austin's really freaking hot. Is it going to be unlivable yeah. in 20 years where you literally can't go outside in the summer and enjoy life? Should we move somewhere like that? That is a, a direct consequence of understanding more of the science that is in your book. You know what I mean? Yeah. Although I will yeah. say about this, this like um, what uh, what Jim Hansen, who's a scientist, who I hope you can tell the book loves. He's such a right? hero in this book. Yeah, yeah totally. incredible, right? Yeah. And one of the there are a number of nice organizational things that I could do because I spent so much time with the book. And mm. Matt, we didn't inflict on the <laughs> listeners just how hard a book it was to write. So Please do talk about some of the. <laughs> but Hansen is uh, he's introduced as somebody who never curses, right? Uh, he has a gee whiz manner, but by the end. His last quote in the book, uh, a great New Yorker writer named Elizabeth Colbert asks him, do you have any message for children growing up now? Do you have any messages for Matt Buker's kids? And his message is, I'm sorry we're leaving such a fucking mess. So that the experience of 
living through the 50 years of non-action on climate is at least it taught, you, know, you, you could retitle this book, How Jim Henson Learned yeah. to Curse. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah, I don't, uh, but what one of the things that Henson said, which is great, Matt, is it's not that warming will always cause warm summers, it's that it loads the dice in favor of warm summers. So if, let's say you had a dice, you know, you had just normal six-sided dice, two of them, you had a one in 12 chance normally that there'd be a really hot summer or that you'd have a summer with more than five days in excess of 90 degrees. Um, as you put more as you put more carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, it's not that you're guaranteed, but it's just that you now have two chances in 12. And then if you have another five or 10 years, you have three chances in 12. So the idea I was reading, uh, one of the climate scientists who was saying that now our odds are 20% in any given, on any given day of having, or any given summer of having a, a hotter than average type summer. So we have loaded the dice up from one in 12 to well, one in five. And we had this thing great. happen in February, which okay. was the greatest like ice storm we've ever had in Austin in February. And it destroyed a lot of 100, 200 year old live oak trees Holy because shit. those trees had been so stressed by years of drought and heat and th it had this sort of effect where it, w it wasn't so much there was tons of ice which there was they're usually built to withstand that but because they had been stressed by you know a decade plus of drought and extreme weather already that it caused them to crack and break and so we had Something like the, the in a city of Austin picked up branches that was like a hundred times their annual pickup in terms of tonnage in one day, and it, it was this phenomenal. It took months to clean up all of the downed branches, and that wasn't because we had a particularly hot year the year before or the year before that. It was a consequence of ten, fifteen years, twenty years, fifty years of stress on the vegetation, and we see that with. With biodiversity in general, I think that we've lost a lot of, of animals and, you know, large land mammals have greatly, you know, they're, so the we, we see it in the fish and everything right now in the Gulf of Mexico. Let me say that when talking about the book, it was such a, sorry, it was such a thrill to get it to work the way I wanted it to work. Um, but when I was taking a walk before the three of us sat down, I was thinking, Jesus Christ, we just warped this world to suit our aims and where do we come off right like so yeah. yes it's just it's the pleasure of having told the story in a way that leaders like us could enjoy it which i think could lead to useful political action but yes when you say things like that if i'm if i'm not thinking about the book or just thinking about the problem it's what a shocking terrible outcome for this planet which is everything is going pretty well right it's evolved in a certain direction and then humans from about 1820, 1830 on developed the ability to change the environment to suit their tastes. And then everything else has to suffer. And uh, even though I'm very, I'm very loyal to my species, you have to be, you have to, you know, you have to root for your species team. It's like we are the worst luck that the planet has yeah. had, um, which makes me yeah. sad. Um, for just the reasons that you were saying. Let me say one more thing about what you were talking about, which gets to the fun DeLillo part of telling the story. Uh, about 10 years ago, people tried to start in the same way that um, people tried to start the phrase going postal. I remember that Amy Heckerling 
wanted to start the phrase going postal, so she used it in uh, in Clueless. She had heard some kids trying to get it going, so I think she put uh, yeah. it in screenplay there. <laughs> um, they tried to start global weirding because what they were saying is it will have consequences just like the ones that Matt was talking about. Mm -hmm. Like when you're heating things up in the summer, it will throw all of the weather off. And so the outcome of that is that the deniers, uh, the the people who design the politics for the deniers, they would say, see, you know, when it's too cold, they're going to say that that's a result because they're just lying to you. And so a lot of that's our opinions, igloo, right? yeah, exactly. A lot of our opinions are designed for this in a way that are disturbing. Like when I run into students of mine, we'll have uh, family members or spouses who are still in denial. And so they will say, ask a professor about this. And so one of the questions that I got from a really brilliant writer, which is her husband, uh, it's a, as if our class is a call-in show, uh, <laughs> I go ahead, you know, <laughs> uh, go ahead, West Hollywood, California, what's your question? Go ahead, Les, we less, you're on the air. And his question is, if it's real, why did they change the phrase from global warming to climate change? And you guys remember why. There was a brilliant pollster named Frank Luntz who is the Times described him as Marlin for the Republican Party, just the <laughs> wizard who can allow them to win their battles. And in, 19, uh, in 1998, he began working on a memo, which uh, became public knowledge uh, in the first part of our century. Uh, so it tends to be thought of as 2002. What he said is Republican candidates, uh, editorial writers, um, it's time for us to stop using the phrase global warming and start using the phrase climate change because global warming has catastrophic connotations attached to it. Whereas climate change sounds like you're going from Cincinnati to Fort Lauderdale. And so that's the degree it's to which our opinions. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That that what you find in your before the word memes, our our brains were meme plexus about things like this. So the reason that tobacco got involved in global warming denial is if you could make the EPA look like they were wrong about climate, then maybe the EPA was wrong about secondhand smoke. Right. And so the yeah. idea was just to, in a sort of clockwork orange way, just to get in there when you weren't looking and just peel back the top of the head and just fiddle with your opinions just a little bit. And I noticed in the book, you know, you you stick with warming and saying warming a lot. Yeah. And I, and I think that 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 shorthand that shorthand keeps the focus on that fact that there is warming and it, climate change. I think was adopted widely because it was seemed like a complex issue, right? And that we did want to say when when El Nino was worse and whenever X and Y happened, that was because of changing climate. Uh, liberal politicians picked that up just as easy. But the focus of being on warming, it seems undeniable to the data, right? Like if you focus on that piece of it, it seems hard to argue with all of the, the hockey stick charts, you know, that say, yeah. Oh, no, yeah. No. So, yeah. So Matt, the seven, just, I think for the foreseeable future, the seven warmest years in history, will right. always be the seven right. most recent years. Yeah. You were born after February 1985. You've never known wow. a cooler than average month. Wow. On That's the crazy. Ever. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. no, the, yeah. So the, no, the data, well, the data is the data and it's what th they warned us the it would be a long time ago. This is the point in the conversation where I'm going to ask Dave if he has any final uh, questions. 
and then we're going to um, <laughs> tell people where to find your book. And, you guys uh, are such lightweights. Well, Come on, we, seven we, years on. We have book. another. We have another segment for going. our our Patreon no, subscribers <laughs> that we'll, we're going to get to. So it's not the end. This is um, this is just a point in um, asking where Dave's um, question questions. Yeah, my lie. final question. My final question was how optimistic are you about um, humanity's ability to take real action on this issue? Governments take real action on this issue. Does the book, The Ministry for the Future, seem realistic to you? Because it's a science fiction book about a ministry that gets made in the future that that is tasked with with um, representing un, the unborn humans and animals this planet will have. Um, and so it's a book about possible solutions to this problem. Um, I recommend it. It's, it's pretty phenomenal. Um, and so I just, yeah sort of to Matt's question like how depressing uh how depressed do you feel as a result of doing this book how optimistic do you think you know how can I, we get I out just of this wrote mess, it okay you know? yeah. how how optimistic are you Dave? like you just you just read Robinson's book and it made me feel hopeful it made me feel hopeful Robinson's book and um I think I'm optimistic that like like good scientists will prevail and like figure out ways to to mitigate this problem or like and hopefully eventually if not neutralize it maybe like gain some territory back um yeah i i feel like i i have to be hopeful about this because i have kids and so like that's sort of to what was saying too like and i have young kids right so like what does their future look like and i i have to believe that we will be able to claw this back somehow but i think we have to overcome like a really fundamental human aspect of human nature which is just greed and and ca i mean capitalism seems to be the real thing that needs to be overcome here because it's in it seems to yeah be in, the um the guy who invented sorry i got um i got so excited by what you were saying <laughs> uh the guy who the first the first person to understand that you could actually make mathematical calculations as to how much heat would come from doubling climate from doubling carbon dioxide he's a man named Sean yeah right and just one thing for people who are tuning in late i'm joking because <laughs> cancer podcast um this was always an establishment idea like the scientists who first isolated carbon dioxide as the thing that helps us keep the sun's heat on the planet without that by the way we'd just be like mars we'd be very chilly and so you couldn't have vegetation you couldn't have either dave's or matt's kids you just would have no life <laughs> Um, the person who discovered that in 1859, uh, John Tyndall, was an establishment scientist. He was about to become the director of the laboratories for the Royal Institution. Similarly, Svante Arrhenius, who did the first work where he said, here's if you double carbon dioxide, it will raise temperatures four degrees Celsius, which is pretty much proven solid from 1896. He was the first Swedish recipient of the Nobel Prize. And he then went and directed the Nobel laboratories for the rest of his career. And by the 20s, the New York Times referred to him as the most distinguished. He was a chemist is what he won the Nobel for, the most, the most famous and the most distinguished chemist alive. So this was always an establishment idea. But Dave, what he said, he started out very optimistic. He was known for his optimism. By the 1920s, in his last book, which was Chemistry and Modern Life, it was like a Neil deGrasse Tyson kind of popularizing book. He deliberately wanted to scare readers, and he also said, it is clear 
that in the future we must stop um, both national egotism and the profit-making industries from being allowed to make the decisions on the proper use of national resources for just the reason that you said, which is capital is they're the wrong people to make these choices. And to me, it's fascinating that the man who in 1896 understood how carbon was going to work to regulate climate, that, you know, almost 30 years later, he was like, there's no solution. The current things can't solve this problem. And so we have lived out both of his discoveries over the last century. Uh, you guys may have noticed that my lightheartedness, because the story is a great story. It's the kind of book that I love mm-hmm. to read. Sure. And Matt, you know my reading taste. But when you guys mentioned your kids, the lightness jumped away from my presentation. In general, if you're curious, from what I understand from people in government, uh, they have the sense that this can be solved technologically, yeah. that it's a technological problem and there will be a technological solution. So the weird thing to me is, yeah, but you don't know what it is. So, for example, there was no technological solution to cancer, right? The, 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 the tumorous growths that were caused by repeated uh, exposure to nicotine-inflected tobacco smoke, the only solution was to stop using it. There never was a technological solution. So the thinking among the people who help us plan our national outcomes has been for some time that there will be a solution offered. Now, the Kim Stanley Robinson, one of the sulfur dioxide being dumped out of the air. That's a short-term solution. It's not, <laughs> yeah. yeah, there, there, and there's yeah, a lot there, of like um, geopolitic, uh, geopolitical yeah. backlash, the rest of the world against India when they decide to do that. But um, yeah. But there have also been, Dave, there have also been scientists who think this may be a problem that's been faced by other civilizations that have gone from disorganization to high organization, and maybe they couldn't solve it either. It may be that there isn't a solution, like we're trapped inside an atmosphere, and maybe there's no solution. Matt, I don't know what about your and Dave's kids. That is such a difficult problem. Yeah, I mean, I think Dave's Um, kids are a little younger than mine, and I was thinking, like, they have a chance of making it to the year 2100, which, you know, as a kid, like me growing up, everyone was curious like what the year 2000 was going to be like right? like 2000 mm-hmm. we just couldn't it didn't even think much beyond the year 2000 it was just like oh my god no, 2000 yeah. like that's going to be was such a huge deal haunting. like getting to the year 2000 <laughs> and now like it's realistic that dave's kids will be alive in another century beyond that which is the year 2100 and so like a lot of these science fiction ideas i guess have started to seem a lot more realistic to me and that you know there's a chance like my kids are going to live a long time and be faced with unknown sort of horrors that are maybe you know over generations like slowly boiling the the frog more and it's not because of lack of technology it does feel like a lot of it is lack of political will and you tell this great story about Mm -hmm. the obama's first term where you know democrats controlled the house the senate the white house and there just wasn't enough political will to go around to do two things at once and really yeah how do you solve and really wasn't enough to even really solve health care for us and yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I was uh, no, sorry, and, I and that's, ahead, that's just the point yeah, is like yeah, a lot of ahead. a lot yeah, of the problems that we have in this world I feel like this all the time with guns too it's like it's just a lack of political will and a lack of you know people getting off of their phones to go actually vote voting is very low yeah, yeah I would also argue that um, that the the modes of political persuasion 
became so sophisticated, became, uh, there's a great phrase in nuclear power, and I think it probably in, um, in atomic weaponry too, which is going critical. It's when you get, uh, when your chain reaction actually becomes nuclear, right? Um, I think that our, our tools of political persuasion went critical, let's say, in the late 70s, early 80s. And they're so sophisticated that you can keep something. It's better to keep something as a political issue than to actually solve it. So warming, climate change, global weirding will be a voting issue for us for our whole lives. And then you can also use countering it as a voting issue for the Republicans. So I think it's not lack of political will. I think that our weaponry became so sophisticated that on most political issues, we just have a trench line. Like uh, Dave... Uh, I don't know how World War One is taught in Canada, but in America, what you keep seeing is just those two trenches that are across from each other. And then there's like a no man's right. land, no person's land in the middle that's just all scarred, yeah. no trees, just like bodies that are mangled in there, stuck on fences. Yeah. I spent a lot of time teaching World um, War I, I think history our... in my teaching career. So okay, yeah, great. So, school, so yeah. <laughs> and so without, yeah, without the intercession of the fresh American troops, um, that war would have gone on forever. And I think that our politics became so sophisticated, sadly enough, around the time that we discovered this problem, that you could keep motivating people and you could keep the problem simmering without solving it indefinitely, because you can always get people to come out and say, we can't afford this, we can't do it. Also, the other part that makes it slightly insoluble is our need for economic yeah. comfort. And uh, Theda Skopkul, who is a great political scientist from Harvard, she quotes the head of um, of the Pew Charitable Trust saying that no important environmental regulation has ever been passed during uncertain economic right, yeah, times. I remember that. And the way our economy is always going up and down, it seems to mitigate against there being a solution. So Matt, what I was just talking about, it made me really sad when you were saying five years from now because uh, friends of mine who live in Arizona they were saying that they can only yeah. go out for a few yeah. minutes a day. Yeah, that's sort of where we're at right now uh, in Austin with this summer. And, uh, you know, I think what you were saying about the ability for us to keep it as a political issue might actually have more value politically than to solve things. That That is, you know, very capitalistic in a lot of ways that it's you know it's it's got this value to it as a bludgeon almost that we can convince people to do things or not with this as an issue and that if it were to be something that we were to get under control you know how much would that actually benefit us um in the way that politics work now is this mass communication phenomenon yeah. and you know the country is only getting larger and the population i think about these in very abstract ways sometimes of like how do you how do you just feed seven billion people three meals a day like that's an incredible task and it's like how do you get the temperature of the seas to go down 1.5 degrees like that's an incredible task yeah you know, but you're asking about that is a good, optimistic answer. I, by the way, think that things will, I think this summer is the equivalent of the ozone hole. So I think all will be well. Um, but do you guys, and it was interesting researching this, there was a, do you guys remember the phrase, Matt, I know you well, Dave, you may not, but the population bomb or the population mm. explosion, the idea, if you go <laughs> and you watch Soylent Green, which is a terrifying, great movie. 
the idea was that you couldn't feed 7 billion people. And that was true based on the food technology of the 50s and 60s. But a man named Norman Boyer, yeah. <laughs> but it's a shallow hole, so you won't spend that much time. He invented uh, a kind of wheat. I always associate it with but with Quadro Triticale, which is the wheat that we right. But he essentially a short-stocked wheat that you could grow anywhere because we would have had ruinous food shortages by the 80s, 90s, oh. and 2000s all across the world if Norman Borliag hadn't developed a wheat that grew more firmly. And it was a technological solution. So you know. that, exactly. So the idea that we could do that uh, suggests that there could be a technological solution. And also, uh, for all the complaints people had about the um, the mask mandates and uh, our staying indoors for two years, as someone who'd been, as Matt knows, researching and writing about this for the better part of seven or eight years, um, what I saw was that Americans could act for uh, for the common good, and they could give up huge amounts. They could sacrifice to help solve right. a problem. And I think that if you said to Americans, look, you simply can't drive for a year or two. You'll have to take public transportation because we don't want to have a repeat of the summers of 2003 and 2004. I know Americans can do that, and Americans know they can do it too because all they have to do is search back to their memories of 2000, 2021, when they kept their kids at home and whenever they went outdoors, they were masked. We can sacrifice so that was one of the thrilling things for me as someone who cares about this issue and had researched yeah. it pretty deeply, is that I saw Americans acting for the common good for really one of the first times. And it was times staying home was life. great for the environment. And like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah it sure. really was. Yeah. <laughs> it was. It was great. Yeah. So all I have to do is do it again. And, you know, luckily we have the writer's strike now, but we've baked a huge amount of Netflix content of varying quality, <laughs> but a terrible show could be fun to watch sometimes too. Okay. Um, I think we're going to transition here and take a break and we will um, do some housekeeping at the end of the thing. And then we're going to do the bonus part. If you're okay with that. Great. Um, so David lightweights, <laughs> it's, it, Only two it's, and a half hours. It's, uh, yeah, it's sure more like, like that problem yeah. we already mentioned of us having little kids and uh, dinner to feed and all of that. So, um, I know, of course, yeah, right. of course. We course. could say this is part one of 327, and um, sure. we'll, we'll yeah. come back next week. I'll be happy to do it again next week. We could go right chapter on. one, yeah. book club. Um, huh. uh, so I would do it. Yeah, uh, there's, 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 a, there's a side note, by the way. Like, we're not we'll cut recorded this out, right yeah. now, right? Or whatever. But, um, okay, yeah. But one of the things, like, the book is, Matt, I know that I'm just talking to you uh Dave, you write, I know that you've written chapters, but, but Matt, I know writes books. Like once I, I knew where the book was going to end. And so it's designed around two things, which is, it turns out that mm. the story was about Edison mm. after all, which is the light bulbs. Yeah. The light bulbs yeah. are what we managed to ban, not cars, pretty, not airplanes, pretty not fucking poetic, fuel, right? Just light yeah. bulbs. They're so yeah. great. Yeah. And then, um, and then the second thing is if you go back and check, Every section begins with 1956 and a mention of Roger Ravel saying in 50 years, we're going to know if this is true. And then the last page, he said that we'll know because there'll be salt water on the streets of London and New York. And there on the last page, London is dry because they have the Seagate and the Thames. But water, you know, salt water flows over lower Manhattan it's and incredible. shorts out the Con Edison plant. It was such a yeah. beautiful thing yeah, to design it around that. Just fun. 
And that's the pleasure if you spend the exact like time. Yeah. Yeah. Ah, the Sarpinski gasket. So if you talk about David Wallace for more than a hundred. Cool. Do you just want to do the final housekeeping little like end of? Uh, uh, All right. So this has been uh, great. We really appreciate you coming here. Yeah, I, thank and you, David. My sincere apologies for not having you on before. I was thinking of David Markson's ex- yeah, this is David Markson's excuse of why he didn't write more books, which is simple barnyard laziness. <laughs> um, and my excuse for like not having you on partly was out of respect for your busy life and schedule. And I know you traveled a lot to write this book and it took a lot out of you. And so I'm happy to have waited so long to have this moment with you where the book is done and we can talk to you about it. So, yeah. So thanks. Thanks for making the time for us today to talk. It's really been a joy and a thrill. Yeah. What a huge pleasure to have you on David. And thank you for this wonderful book. It's so, uh, dense and illuminating and entertaining and funny um the part about the marlboro cigarettes like rebranding to become the cigarette with balls and with the cowboy (laughs) like there's just so many weird funny amazing things that you uncovered in this book um i just really want to thank you for it and thank your publishers for sending it to us it's been uh it's been a great read over over dave took it to ireland i think thank you again i did yeah i read most of it in ireland that we just got back a week ago and then finish the rest of it uh, on the ferry to Vancouver. So if our listeners want to keep up with David Lipsky, where, where should they follow you? Or, um, you know, the book is available everywhere. Um, we can't even say Twitter anymore. I don't even know if Twitter I, I have. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, but I X, but right. I don't have so, a social media. That's good. Friends. So um, they'd have to, yeah, they'd the, have to follow the parrot me. The paradinintheigloo.com. Uh, they'd have to, to take your classes <laughs> at New York University. <laughs> yeah. would be a good way to. <laughs> Yes, we, we have had one former student of yours on the show, which is Dario Diofebi. You know, and, and Dar- right. Dario. I don't know how is how yeah, is Dario. We love that the book. book great. You know, he Did came to think? our conference last year in Austin too, and uh, he was a great guest. We loved having him on, and you know that's one thing that I knew I would love the book is that he had thanked you uh, and Martina Testa so pro- pro- profusely that's in that right, book. Yeah. But um, yeah. just one of your many. I was also delighted. Students. Yeah, I was also delighted. I recently read The Rabbit Hutch by Tess Gunty and saw your name in the acknowledgments. And I was, my eyes lit up. I was like, oh, this is such a cool connection. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, it's a total pleasure to teach uh, people who love to read. And that's one of the one of the great things for us to be talking has been just three people who love books. And that's, um, again, the point of this book was to tell the story to people who their basic interface with the world is through a page with a page with punctuation and letters on it. So I love talking with you guys about it. Thank you. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, thanks yeah, for doing thank this. You, and Dave, any um, uh, people want to email us, they can email us at concavity show at gmail.com. We are That's on right. all the socials, mostly Dave's more on Instagram these days. I think we're concavity show on Instagram. Um, Yep. X, whatever. But what else, Dave? Do we need to do we need to think? Uh, that's it, as usual. Thanks for patrons. If you're uh, a patron, stick around. We got more uh, from David Lip- David Lipsky coming at you soon. Here, his top top five or some books. kind of books. We're so. not sure what their what that top five is going to look like, but we're looking forward to hearing it. <laughs> Thanks. This has been episode seventy four. Until next time. For the answers you seek.